What is up, asymmetry? Oh, man. Derek DeLisi blew my mind. Um, a really interesting bonsai practitioner out of Montreal, Canada, living in Halifax at this point, but somebody who has studied uh, philosophy to a very significant uh, depth and detail and has been kind of dedicating his process of philosophy um, towards a, a philosophical perspective called inactivism. And um, the greatest example would be, you know, Michael Jordan dribbling to the basket, making a pass, talking about it in the after post-game interview saying, I don't even remember making the pass. It just happened, right? That, that moment. And, uh, and, and Derek had a lot of really interesting things to say as it applies to bonsai life in general and just a, a dissection of bonsai as a medium and a really cerebral art form. I stumbled through the first portion of this trying to figure out what the heck I'm supposed to talk about or what the actual nature of the conversation is, but we find our footing and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I felt like it, um, it applies to so much. So, um, might be a little esoteric, but uh, if you're willing, stick with it because I think I think we discussed some pretty interesting stuff. Derek Delisi, everybody, Here we go. All right, uh, I hear you now. Nice, nice. What's cool. going on? How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. Congrats on the uh, Benoki scholarship, man. Oh, thank you so much. That is very very cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a nice surprise. I wasn't expecting the. To get it, I wasn't even sure if Canadians were allowed to apply or not, and I kind of shot in the dark and uh, got a really nice surprise email from uh, Robert Pressler one morning. Very cool, very cool. The competition I heard was was pretty fierce for that uh, scholarship this year. There were a lot of applicants. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very, very cool. And and you um you followed up uh you know after having watched some different content and just saying. Hey, there, I'm studying something in terms of uh, inactivism in philosophy, yeah. and and uh, and Eve forwarded me the email, and I was just like, "Wow, this is fascinating! I got to talk to this guy." <laughs> so, well, thank you so much for inviting. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so so where are you at? What are you doing? How did you get into philosophy in the first place? This is where I got to start. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So I did a I did a well. It's kind of just a, a general academic interest that it started with. I did a bachelor's degree in classics, but spent most of my time doing philosophy um, and kind of was attracted to the, the intersection of where philosophy and classics were talking to each other. A lot of the stories in Greek myths um, have uh, scenarios and situations where people are making decisions that don't seem like the kinds of decisions that we would be making in those situations, or at least are not understanding them in the same terms as we're understanding them. And just something about that type of philosophy was, was making sense to me. It, it helped me understand Greek myths. Uh, and I ended up putting two feet um, into, into philosophy and abandoning uh, my classical studies. Wow, interesting. So, so being fascinated in the, in the stories of the classics is what took you to trying to understand the mentality behind the decisions being made? Absolutely, yeah. Wow, wow. Now, where, where do you live currently? Now I'm in Halifax. Oh, okay, Halifax. Uh, I was in Montreal for, I'm 31 years old. I was in Montreal for 31 years. Uh -huh. And uh, my wife was offered, offered an opportunity to, uh, to expand her career here in Halifax. So we're here for maybe three, four years before we can return to Quebec. Very uh, cool. Yeah. Um, and uh, and did you, so you were born and raised in Montreal? 
Yeah. Wow. Tell me about yeah, it, tell me about Montreal. I have nothing but good things to say about Montreal. What was it like growing up there? It's a special city. Is it? And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's hard to to find it elsewhere. There's the um, the city's very very alive. It's very very easy to make friends. It's very very easy to make connections. And uh, so our generation, uh, I would say maybe we're a group of thirty guys or so. We all worked at the same on the same street, uh, St. Lawrence Street, which is the kind of the main hub for nighttime activity. At least it was ten years ago, mm-hmm. and we all worked at the same bars and restaurants and clubs that were all next door to each other. Mm. And uh, it was absolutely wild because everyone knew everyone, and it seemed like the whole street was a party. <laughs> uh, so the, from like from like sixteen years old to maybe twenty five, uh, it was it was a wild time. Just nothing but nothing but good times. Nothing but good time um, to you stumble into any bar or restaurant and just know you're going to have a good time. And it's still like that. I just don't live there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's Halifax like? Much quieter. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it feels like, um, it feels like there's, there's a lot of potential though. There's, there's, mm. uh, the city's happening. There are people moving in young, a lot of young people, uh, are moving to the neighborhood. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of real estate expansion, a lot of restaurants are opening up that wouldn't have opened up in, in mm-hmm. this city five or 10 years ago. There's a possibility for, for a lot of great things to happen in the next 10 years. Hmm. Even, uh, even now, as, as, things, as the world is still dealing with uh, COVID, you're seeing small places like that in Canada growing? Yeah, the number of, of cases here has been really, really small. Right. So the, we're still taking precautions at restaurants and bars and things like that. But it feels like it's gone back to normal. I've gone back to Montreal now uh, three times since we moved here in April, mm. and uh, in Montreal, the, the precautions are much, much more severe than than they are here. At least the the tone and, and feel, the mood yeah. of, of the city is, is 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 pretty much what you what you'd expect in non COVID times in Halifax. So I, I mean, so growing up in Montreal, what did you spend your what did you spend your um, I mean, you you talked about from sixteen to twenty five, but what did you spend most of your time doing? How'd you get into bonsai? How'd that begin? Oh man, uh, it was a bit of a it was a decision between two or three hobbies. I had uh, at a very young age, I started building. Uh, I got into cars. I was modifying cars, stuff like that. I guess what a lot of teenagers do. Yeah, uh, into reef aquariums, different types of pets, carnivorous plants. I was a little bit everywhere, cool. and usually things that were uh, very technical and, and involved a kind of uh, a higher level learning or understanding. If it required more time to understand it, then that kind of attracted me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the topic. So I, when when we first uh, I got married a couple of years ago, and when we first moved in together, we weren't sure how long we were going to be staying at the place we were living at. Yeah, and that, that's where I had to make the big decision whether I was going to go full into uh, fully into the reef aquariums, or whether I was going to transition into bonsai. And as much as it's not some the kind of thing you want to move around with very much, bonsai seemed like the easier thing <laughs> to move around. That makes a lot. Of, that makes a lot of sense. There's a, there's there is a huge crossover to um, people that really love engaging with reef aquariums and people that practice bonsai. This is like yeah. there's some relationship that exists within those two activities or endeavors uh, that seems to relate. And you chose bonsai. Yeah. The most the I more the bonsai. more mobile of the two. The more mobile of the two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems like an amazing intersection of there's propagation, there's the actual growth, the cultivation, there's the artistic, the arrangement in the aquarium, the landscapes, and it's it's crazy the yeah. intersection. A lot of people that I meet uh, are interested in both. 
Very, very cool. Very some, people, cool. Some, people, some people manage to do both. I have no idea how that, that requires. So are you, uh, are you in a more permanent place now? Like, could you go back to reef aquariums or are you still like, no, we're just going to focus on bonsai for the time being? Yeah, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to do bonsai for as long as I can. That's cool. The, we, I decided to do like a, so my teacher, I mean, my main teacher in Montreal, or he's outside of Montreal, he's in, he's in Granby, uh, is Yves Le Tourneau. And he's been running Bonsai ENR for uh, since 1984-ish. He started the business, mm-hmm. and uh, he basically supplies all of Quebec. He's, I think, Quebec's best kept secret. And he supplies, uh, I forgot how many varieties, but it's absurd. It's like 150 varieties or something like that of pre-bonsai material, all the classic species, and even some unusual ones like Acer Rupert and things like that. So he's great. He's so, great. He's a grower then. He's a grower, yeah. Oh, He's wow. a grower and it's strictly pre-bonsai, super, super high quality material and like in huge quantities. So if he's doing the shoujo, he's doing 500 the shoujo. If right. he's doing an elm, he's doing 1,000 elms. Um, it's really, it's, it's impressive. And so he mentioned a few years ago that he was going to be downsizing. So my plan was to, or downsizing his production. And so my plan was to slowly take that over and set up uh, a nursery in Quebec. But because we moved here... I decided to try online sales, mostly selling his inventory, but some stuff I'm producing. Mm-hmm. And then when, when we go to Quebec, when we move back to Quebec in three or four years, I'm hopefully going to set up a greenhouse somewhere near him so the transition is quite easy Yeah, uh, and take over that that aspect of the business. So yeah, so we're here temporarily, so uh, can't set up my reef aquarium yet. Yeah, right. But maybe, <laughs> maybe one day in a greenhouse. So the reef aquarium is <laughs> coming back. The plans, the plans uh, are it's, that the reef aquarium is going to make a comeback. Yeah, it'd be hard for me not to. Uh, there's like there's a few items on my checklist that I absolutely need. I need a dog at some point. But we move around too much. I can't get a dog. Yeah, it, just, it would be practical. I really want a dog. Uh, I'm attracted that we spent a few months in the Philippines uh, a couple of years ago, and a lot of people had pet roosters, and huh. so I, I became absolutely fascinated with roosters and went <laughs> way too deep as I did with bonsai and reefs <laughs> and cars and just got really into roosters. And now I need a rooster. Very cool. A rooster, <laughs> yes. a, a rooster. My experience with roosters is that they're not that friendly, but maybe, no. <laughs> ma- but, but, but maybe you can push past that in your relationship. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to try. Yeah. So, so, but when you reached out to me uh, and you were talking about, you were saying something to the effect of um, the fact that we've discussed the process, process of creation in, in, in a variety of ways. And you were, you're focusing on, inside of philosophy and activism, which I'm now understanding is kind of h- h- how you decision make. Uh, yes. At least that's what transitioned you. But now it's you defined it as the moments when a person is acting at their best. And yeah. the, the degree to which a person's sense of agency can fade in those moments. So basically hitting flow state. Exactly, yeah. It was your conversation with, uh, with Keegan, uh, uh, I don't know how, how long ago that was. I've listened to it a few times and you're talking about things like being in dialogue with the material or mm. uh, speaking through it, getting into a state of flow, uh, letting the material speak for itself, things like that. And that really, that really, uh, that spoke to me a lot because the, the, the part in Greek mythology that interested me the most were moments when a hero has a difficult decision to make or ends up making a decision uh, where they don't feel like they themselves are the agent who's rationally making the decision, but they feel like the decision is being drawn out of them by the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to actually ask you a few questions. So I was curious about what your experience was like, because I'm not a bonsai master, and I've never been in the situation where when styling a tree, do I feel like the tree is calling for certain types of actions, and am I being drawn to make those kinds of actions? Yeah, yeah, I'm totally open to you a- a- ask, asking some questions, and I got some questions too. Um, so yeah. I'd, I'd say let's rock and roll. 
Let's do it. I, I, I would ask you, I guess, like in terms of the study of this, just so that I can like kind of understand what do you, when you start to address something like inactivism as a study of philosophy, how do you try and explain flow state? How do you break it down and study it? And, and what is the ultimate goal of what you find or what you decide upon in terms of that study? I just don't get how you dissect a concept objectively, you know? For sure. Yeah. So the, um, in the history of philosophy and, and even today, um, most people think that they're rationally making decisions and that they, they, they stop, they think about things, they make decisions, and they themselves as agents act on the world. Hmm. Uh, and activism says that we're actually in a dynamic interaction almost constantly with the environment and that the, uh, the decisions that we make aren't necessarily coming from our rational sense of agency are rational and agency, uh, but they're actually being drawn out of us uh, by an engagement with the moment. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for instance, and, and a whole bunch of aspects fall and fall, make up how we end up making decisions. So, for instance, uh, the, the big episode where I really got into this topic was the, the opening chapter or the opening book of the Iliad and uh, Homer's, uh, Homer's Iliad. So Achilles um, gets into an argument with his master and pulls out his sword and he wants to stab his master. And just as he's about to do it, he feels like a god is, is forcing him not to do it. Um, and so this, his decision not to do it isn't actually a decision he makes. It's a decision that's called upon him by the environment and the moment. He knows that basically we can refer to them as, as norms and social rules. We can refer to them as, as cultural uh, in forces that, that refuse him or pre- prevent him from making certain types of decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's more or less it. So it, it's, it's an, it's an activism switches our mindset from thinking about us as subjects that act on the world or agents that act on the world to uh, agents who are actively and inseparably inter- intertwined and dynamically interacting with the world. Yeah, and I mean, how, how do you separate that interpretation of the environment from conscious thought to perform an action, like the environment influencing you without your brain somehow interpreting that, you know, and like maybe I'm thinking too black and white and linear in the concept, but I guess to to diversify those two things seems really challenging to me, like I don't understand it. Yeah, yeah totally. So there's um, a, lot of the, a lot of the philosophers working in activism today trace, go back to Heidegger. And Heidegger had a concept of the background. Uh, and then um, Hubert Dreyfus is a famous professor who recently passed away at uh, Berkeley University. Uh, and he did a lot uh, with the background. He talks about background being um, a combination of uh, basically reflection uh, and personal traits that combine with cultural traits that create a background. Uh, and this background is kind of a, a base, uh, our homeostatic uh, baseline in our brains that uh, kind of guide our decisions and actions without us having to actually think about uh, certain decisions and actions. Uh, and it, it, it varies from uh, decisions that we kind of make in like very pressing situations, like deciding not to punch your boss in the face. And then their actual, it goes all the way down to the basics of perception. So the example I had given you in that email was Marilyn Ponty, uh, who studied the proper distance uh, from standing from a painting for viewing it. And so there you get uh, normativity, the, the norms of, of, uh, of the, basics func- the basic functions of perception uh, allow for an optimal distance when viewing a painting. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, and so, so it's not to, 
when you start to talk about the environment influencing the action, it's not to discount that the brain is interpreting it, but it is to basically say the action has become so much of a common application and and uh, muscle memory action that that now it does fade into your sort of foundational uh, psychology, and that's that's where you just naturally don't have to focus on the action as much. Exactly. Yeah. And the environment yeah, so then has the room to, to be more of an influence. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. The, the, fam the famous example that Hubert Dreyfus always used was Larry Bird, the basketball player, where Larry Bird makes a pass in the perfect moment. It's the most beautiful pass. It's perfect. It gets right in the guy's hands at the optimal moment. They end up winning the game, the whole thing. And you, they interview Larry Bird after the game. And he says, I didn't decide to make that pass. It just the the mood of the moment called for that pass and the, the situation called for that pass and i made the pass i realized i had made the pass after i made it mm -hmm. yeah interesting yeah so that that's really where i was i was curious because it it happens at, at all levels and there's there's it happens to ordinary people and it happens in ways where you don't really really realize it's happening but when you realize when you look at people who are operating really at the best experts masters people who are high level operation, it seems to happen so smoothly and so seamlessly mm -hmm. um, in so many different ways. Um, it makes for much, much more interesting. Uh, you'd, you'd be an excellent study subject. I'm, I, I'm in. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, I think when I was in Japan and I was really digging deep on, you know, just it's nonstop. It's the, being a bonsai apprentice in Japan is nonstop. And that, training that cons consistency especially in my fifth and sixth year where there's a lot of younger apprentices and I'm just sitting on my knees from literally you know 8 30 in the morning until 8 p.m at night and then maybe come back for another two hours after dinner you're, you're talking about 12 14 hours of just straight wiring every single day it became very interesting and 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 so that's where I started thinking about when I read your email and the, the discussion of Larry Bird in the past and, and sort of um, having very, being very familiar and experiencing that, but having Bonsai be such a trigger to get there, I was like, yes, this is interesting. I want to know more about this. <laughs> it's just so hard to, uh, to comprehend, you know, and when you talked about sort of the foundation or the background um, and, and a thought moving to that background, but yet when it, when you become aware of the action afterwards, is it because there has been a physical action that your brain has to register and the, that background action becomes more of a foreground realization? How does that transition of thought work between the unaware action and the awareness of it after the fact? Yeah, I, yeah, I have no idea. Huh. <laughs> that's that's, that's the, the interesting part, right? It's where you get people who because the background is a normative basis and it's, it's so largely cultural, even though as you're growing up as a child, you're absorbing it and you're reflecting on it and you're modifying it. So it becomes a personal version of the cultural norms, essentially. Um, even though you end up having that personal, that personal twist on the cultural norms, when you perform actions, they tend to be quite normative and quite in line with what uh, nature calls for. Mm -hmm. So then how do you become and that's where it gets really interesting is how do you end up doing something uh, like a spontaneous outside of those norms or something that pushes those norms to an extreme where you're making essentially an artist statement or, or you're making a, a kind of decision where it really stands out. And at that point, can you still be doing it without the reflective process or that you have to that point, stop, take a step back, think about it and then act. And that's where it isn't, uh, it isn't totally clear. And that's an interesting point in the, um, 
and the examination of the philosophy of action. Yeah. Yeah, because flow state seems to have, there's like uh, like like a natural movement into flow state. And, and, yes. and, and for me, it's very abrupt when it happens, you know, like I'll start doing something, I'll be incredibly uh, aware of everything. And then suddenly, I'm not aware of anything. Like, so I, I'm aware that I'm thinking, but I'm not really aware of any like physical or tangible surroundings. Time obviously just completely dissipates. Wow, yeah. Typically, typically music really helps, and typically in the nighttime. Okay. Uh, my my oh, wow. my brain has always creatively functioned after the after like eleven p.m. Like between eleven wow. p.m. and three a.m. is where most of Mariah was like built. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I don't do that anymore, and and it's very <laughs> it's it's a lot harder to get into a more focused state during the daytime because uh, uh I think there's a lot going on, but there's also a lot of stimuli visually, you know. Something about the dark and everything being uh, far more zoomed in, really, uh, it was almost like a uh, like a like a focus on a camera or something for me. Cool. So, from understanding, it's not necessarily with a particular type of activity. It could be it could be anything. It could be wiring. It could be bending branches. It could be building a greenhouse. No, I would I, I would typically say that it would be associated with repetitive motion, like uh, okay. like wiring, and I I think that's like. Even being on stage, like uh, being on stage doing a demonstration, when there are those moments where where like you're really hyper focused and you're doing something to the best of your ability, then it then it really does start to kind of happen on its own. I think it's, I think the sensation is very much heightened in a demonstration because you it's almost like you have more juice flowing through you to be manipulated by the moment. But but uh, but I, I I like demonstrations so much because you do kind of oscillate in and out of that sort of internalized dialogue and action and then you know seemingly natural and then you have you have to turn that off for a moment or slip in and out of it as you're doing that work and that's really it's like a really super uh, challenging thing to try and and reconcile. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah I was curious. Uh how often i was going to ask and then you, you answered that question is how often you end up doing i don't want to um, this is not going to come out the right way but like typical like how often are you, are you doing ryan neal and how often are you doing something that you that isn't common or comfortable ryan neal like are you exploring while you're in flow or does it have to be ryan neal sorry i didn't know how else to put that yeah no <laughs> no i think that's yeah i think that's really good i think um I think I aspire to always continue to push what, you know, what Ryan Neal is like for me, I yes. think it, it more comes down to like my, the ethos or at least what speaks to me about pursuing bonsai as a creative endeavor is, is, you know, there's, there's a lot of different mediums. And one of the things that stuck out to me doing the artisans cup was um, one of the architects said, listen, right now, architecture is moving so fast that you don't get a Bauhaus movement anymore, or you don't get, um, you know, a mid-century modern, or you don't get an art deco movement. It's just moving so fast. Right. There's no focus and there's no perfecting of the craft inside of the concept. And so I think like, it's a difficult balance doing bonsai of how do you become, how do you uh, work out or tease out or massage a problem enough to know that you've reached its its maximum potential, or at least what you can realize with your skills and, and you know, information. Uh, versus continue trying to grow so that you're always pushing that boundary. And I think bonsai as an art form and what makes it attractive as a medium is I think it actually creates those moments of growth for you. And and maybe this even goes back into what you're talking about just as like a more like macro overarching level for me is 
you know, you, you, you work on certain trees at certain times of year and certain things happen and you learn from that, whether it's good or bad. And all of a sudden trying to, trying to rein in, uh, the behavior of maintaining bonsai over the course of a season and having those uh, failures and successes kind of in the art form itself dictates, dictates a, a, a little bit of, um, a similar arc, I think. Um, yeah. And so, so there's multiple ways, there's multiple ways that I guess you could consider it, but, um, trying, trying to constantly do something that pushes my comfort zone is necessary. If, if we're talking about pursuing bonsai creatively in my mind. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think that's like the birthplace of a lot of the forests, which are, when you think about it, you know, the redwood forest that we created is a, is a painstaking, painstaking multi-year process to make that forest, you know, and it's like, if you didn't want to push your limit, even to maintain it on an annual basis, but to continue to figure out how a composition like that evolves is not information that anybody's ever shared with me. So it is when you make it, you make the long-term commitment to that growth that you're going to experience with that piece as well, which I, I think is the best part about bonsai and the tree guide and the journey. But I think the forests are, are pushing boundaries. We've recently started some new projects that uh, I've never experienced anything like it creatively with bonsai before. And, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it more as, as the projects kind of work themselves out. But um, always, looking to try and, always looking to try and advance. I, I never want to go so fast that I don't develop the fluency or, or the, the vernacular for what I'm doing at that point in time. And I think that's, that's where I try to strike a balance. Cool. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, one of the one of the things that really interests me you're mentioning forests um and one of the one of the topics that interests me a lot is is typicity in, in bonsai designs and styles mm -hmm. and so what i what i think about a lot then i was going through the kokovu catalogs and looking at the development of certain types of species so for instance like the hedgehog quinces um, and how do you get a, a hedgehog chojubai to be the chojubaiist Let's let's say like like, like or, for or, that to be the 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 aspired aesthetic, yeah. Okay. Because so so the, the reason why that interests me a lot is uh, Plato has a concept of the ideal. So he has this allegory of the cave that he talks about. Maybe you're familiar. So where a whole bunch of people are standing in a, in a cave and they're staring at a wall, and all they can see is uh, there's a fire behind them, and all they can see projected on the wall are the shadows of things out there in the world. Mm -hmm. and they can't see the things in and of themselves. And so Plato has this whole idea of the ideal where every, everything in the world, concepts, ideas, objects, uh, all have an ideal form. And all the things that we see here in the world are just manifestations, uh, circumstantial, and they have particularities and stuff like that. They're, they're representations uh, and they're their own version of that ideal. And they all point to that ideal, but they're never quite that ideal. Mm -hmm. um, so you see things like the people talk about typicity in wine. I guess that's the, it makes more sense. So like you talk about a, a, the typicity of Pinot Noir. So you can get Pinot Noir from a whole bunch of different regions of the world. And you talk about typical Pinot Noir, which Pinot Noir is the Pinot Noirist. Almost. You can almost ask that question. Right. I think about it a lot for, for, for bonsai. Is it possible to be, is it possible to push like, can you get the Chojubaiist Chojubai or can you get the Zalkova broom? Can you be the Zalkoviist broom mm -hmm. uh, and be, uh, and still be doing something different. 
within, within the traditional confines. Yes. Yeah. Right. This is so interesting. That's such an interesting question. I, I think it's, um, I mean, I think it is so difficult to rein that idea in though, because you have to, you, it feels to me at least as I've observed different cultures practicing bonsai and kind of looked at the aesthetics that come from that. If you consider the individual a filter for the culture that they exist in, which is formed by the nature around it and dictates sort of the, the individual, you know, how they eat, what they do every day, what they find to be attractive, what they reference in their memory. So then when you start to look at the, the aesthetic and you say, okay, the, 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 the most chojubai, chojubai, you know, it's like, um, one culture styling a chojubai is going to create a different, I would say, high level ideal of a chojubai than another. And then can you say that in terms of bonsai? Now, if you're talking about Japanese bonsai, I think that's what you see at the Kokufu, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's where I went because it seems like they've worked it out for long enough, mm -hmm. where you you can get a nice palette of representations yeah. that all seem to point to the same ideal. Yeah, yeah, it, it gets like it's totally. easy with a Zalpopa broom or, or a chojubai, and I pick those. But I think you can do it with like a semi-cascade white pine, sure. or a, an upright an upright maple. Mm -hmm. But it's just so difficult to uh, ratios, uh, diameters, uh, aspects, uh, inclinations, angles of branches, all those things you'd have to kind of like if you were feeding all that information into a computer as, as rules mm -hmm. to make the Chojubai, it would be so much more complex, I think, to do it for something like a, like a maple or a pine. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, no, it's super yeah. interesting. But I, I think like the best part about what's happening now, though, because when you think about bonsai around the world, that... I mean, the Japanese aesthetic is, is so beautiful. It really, I mean, what they do have done with bonsai and what they've created that has caused the rest of the world to pay attention and aspire to do this thing is, is stunning. And it's such a good, I think, um, I think it's a good foundation. To some degree, it feels like it relates to your concept of sort of the common memory being placed on the background and mm -hmm. taking these idolized forms that have become more what what I what I hear you saying? What did you call it? Typicist? Uh, typicity. 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 Yeah, so that's the term I borrowed from wine. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but I mean, but but you do you do ha have this have this kind of ideal, and I think what I recognize seeing it over and over and over again, as beautiful as it was, was that it started moving. It started moving out of like that foreground of something being different. It had been different in the beginning from what I had seen in North America. And then as you existed in it and particularly pursuing it to that degree, some, some of the scary things about, I think, flow state are that you can potentially, in flow state, work into a pattern that you've become extremely uh, proficient at, right? So if you suddenly, if the moment suddenly takes you, it's like, well, does that moment in the practice of bonsai take you into a, a, a point where you're going to be, to be repeating something? Or is it taking you into a moment where you're going to cut off a different branch and make a totally radically different decision and explore that boundary or do something uncomfortable? So, like inside of what you're talking about, how do you reconcile th that? Like, does that is that factor into the thought process? Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> the the problem the problem that I have is I've only been doing this for a few years. Uh huh. So the the actual experience, which is. Uh, so what I'm interested in the most is perception and phenomenon, the experience of what it's like to be in those moments. I'm lacking. 
Mm-hmm. So I rely on watching guys like you work in videos or, or being at people's workshops and watching them work to, to study this. But I always get a third person perspective. Mm-hmm. It's the, uh, it's the sub- subjective accounts that are, I think, the most interesting in these moments. It in in my mind trying to trying to break it down and like understand it because obviously like I'm pretty infatuated with the process. I, I think that was the most powerful aspect. I don't know if you followed any of the lab project uh, that the Pacific Bonsai Museum did through the podcast. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I, I think I think uh, Austin and Ron and myself probably would all say that that it definitely spawned and 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 pushed us out of our normal way of doing things or drew significant attention to when we fall into that, mm-hmm. uh, that temptation or that tendency. But, um, but I recognize that the, the challenge of doing that project itself kept things very, very fresh, you know, and very, um, aware. And I appreciated that because I think part of trying to hone in on that yearly lifestyle of bonsai where you are trying to understand how and when you maintain these trees to maximize them or have them be beautiful or engage with them um, and, and really get to experience that benefit it is you you also do and what I do see commonly happen is the aesthetic of the tree reflects that same nuance or tendency to move into that practice right like mm-hmm. like yoga poses where you're where you're really starting to homogenize and trying to improve the movement of your body to a very efficient degree this the way you form a tree is really trying to strike the balance of generating interest and generating a photosynthetically efficient system a a, a machine right and and that that is a very interesting thing too because the trees are always going to be moving in a direction and even though working on the tree in and and having that moment strike you where you do you know make some risky decision on that tree one of the one of the really interesting things to me is the fact that that tree will did i lose you there for a sec yeah it was just sorry yeah okay one one of the interesting things to me is that in boneside that tree will try to move back it'll try to move back towards with water and fertilizer and all the care that we give them uh that this sort of um youthful looking photosynthetically efficient uh, efficient system and that's, again, where it seems like in terms of the thought process and trying to reconcile it, although not trying to use bonsai as a way to understand, I kind of am trying to use bonsai as a metaphor because <laughs> it does help me think. But it's like, man, that form, that initial behavior seems to me like the background that you form that does allow you to interpret and guide, but also has the ability to lock you into sort of a, a more habitual practice or a more um, consistent execution or potentially even a habit, if you will. Right. Does that That's so? So when when you when you talk about this, I'm just curious. Like, how how do you discuss this with your colleagues or with students or professors? How do you study this? You listen to people explain their experiences and then try to make sense of it, organize it. What does that look like? So I I use uh, ancient Greek ancient Greece as a as a medium basically. Mm-hmm. So I I use ancient Greek mythology, uh, poetry, and philosophy, anthropology, and culture. A big mix of of, of all three. Um, of the early culture, so Sanskrit, um, uh, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, but mostly ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I focus on that. So I'm pretty much in, in isolation where there's a handful of philosophers really working on, the, on this topic um, who are, are publishing actively and, and making advancements on it. The thing is that this is happening in philosophy almost, I mean, 
they have a say in, in what happens in, in outside of philosophy, but people working in psychology and neuroscience and anthropology all seem to be heading in that same direction. Mm-hmm. And just the, the interdisciplinary nature of um, kind of, there isn't much of an interdisciplinary nature in, in higher end academia, unfortunately. So yeah, and I, I ended up abandoning uh, my PhD studies. Uh, I do it all on my own now. Oh, no kidding. Because, uh, yeah, it just it made no sense to uh, to pursue it. I was studying in North Carolina, uh, and essentially working under a whole bunch of professors who didn't know anything more about the topic than I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so it really uh, and, and not being allowed to work with people in other departments uh, kind of left uh, left me very little reason to stay there. Yeah, yeah, interesting. interesting. So, so yeah, we're. It's it's harder. It's much more fun, anyways, to be out here in the world, uh, speaking to people. Uh, I played hockey for fourteen years, so when I when I think about these situations, I have them I have them in my head from my hockey when I used to play hockey. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like to take a shot and not even realize I was taking the shot, and the puck goes in, mm-hmm. uh, and it's so it's a fantastic feeling. And and it's clear that I didn't think about making that shot. I didn't even think about where I was aiming it. I just my body somehow knew yeah. and it's not quite muscle memory because it's so contingent on the circumstances out there in the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and that's where an activism comes in, where the decision that my body made is totally dependent on its interaction with the environment. Mm. Hmm. So yeah, so I'm, I'm limited into, uh, into the ways that I can, um, the ways that we can study this, but the opportunities are definitely there and you've got to look for it. Can, can, I, bit, uh, can I ask you a question about what you just yeah. said? Um, so when you talk about being in the game and, and hitting a hockey shot and then how the environment is influencing that, is that to say that being in practice hitting that same shot, which also could have the same, you could be in the same mind space, not, well, I don't know, maybe you couldn't be in the same mind space. It seems it seems like you could see, be in the same physical action and, and complete the same shot. And you're saying that somehow that shot would be different when you're in the game because of all of the other factors influencing it. Yeah, and that's where typicity comes in, where you're, you're kind of prepared by doing hundreds of thousands of shots over and over from standing in the same position, let's say. Every shot is, is in some way different. Hmm. And so you're almost getting uh, manifestations or variations at the surface level experience. And there's, in, in, in some sense, an ideal shot in that moment, in that situation, that you, you can't really, if, if someone asked me to identify it, draw it on a, draw it out or explain where the puck would go, how my leg would bend, it would be impossible to do. But it seems like it exists out there and all the shots are kind of around it. And they kind of, mm-hmm. if, you, if you put them all on a computer screen, it would be the line through all the center of them kind of thing, like a, you're plotting on a graph. Right, right. Do you think um, do you think certain certain cultures have more of an ability to seek that out or perfect those actions or um, reach the kind of flow state that you're talking about? I think so. I've always studied it as a term as a thing where it's it's at a, it's at the very core mechanics of how our bodies work. Mm-hmm. And then everyone experiences it to different degrees. And then the most interesting degrees are masters. So I guess masters in every field. So for instance, when you watch um, a chef's table on Netflix, you see some of the chefs who definitely have it going on where they're chopping and they're having a conversation. They're not realizing what they're chopping. Yeah. And that's just, that's a very basic example. But you see that the way they speak and the way they talk about the world that they inhabit, 
It's totally different. For them, their knife isn't necessarily anymore a tool. It becomes their way of engaging with the world that they know. Mm. And that's where it gets really, really interesting, uh, at least for me. Um, so when you say, when, when, when they're engaging with the world in, in a way that they know, like, what, is that, what does that look like if you translate that to, to, to bonsai? What does that mean? Yeah, so someone who's really like someone who's really, really, really familiar with the world of bonsai. Uh, talk, we talk about in Heidegger talks about world disclosure, where worlds disclose themselves to people uh, differently in terms of how they're familiar with the world. We talk about the attunement of the world. So your attunement with, with the world would be uh, that of a bonsai master. Uh, a chef would be in attuned to the world in terms of chef. So when you walk into a room, the way that the world presents itself to you is in terms of or in the light of your relationship called bonsai with with the world. So when you see, uh, for instance, chopsticks on a table, you don't think about eating sushi. You think about repotting, uh, or, or whatever you do. Which I was. Oh, <laughs> well, that's a good uh, one. Things like that, right? So like, um, some uh, a carpenter walks through the forest, and he doesn't see the same thing that an arborist sees. Mm-hmm. He sees uh, this. Actually, might be an interesting conversation with with Austin Heitzman. Uh, is it? Yes, it the would. way that yeah. <laughs> And yeah, so the way that the world presents itself to you at its, at its basics is different uh, for different people. Um, and so, yeah, so that's where, that's, where, that's where it totally comes in for bonsai is that when you see a tree and then so it ends up being a kind of thing where it's not really a filter, it's truly your relationship with the world. It happens on a world as a whole and it happens for individuals within the world. It happens for uh, objects, even concepts within the world. So for instance, uh, when you see a tree, that tree presents itself to you in terms of your relationship with the bonsai world, the particular, let's say it's a white pine, your relationship with white pines, your relationship with white pines of that style, your relationship with the white pines of that style in that pot. And there's like a whole filter that happens where uh, just by looking at the tree, then you can make decisions about, about styling, at least I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But again, it's so weird because it's like, uh, it's like staying inside of that, staying inside of that, whatever, you know, whatever. Or not, yeah. Yeah, or not. And that's, yeah. that, yeah. that, but that does become the decision, right? Or at, at least as I see it. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like you're talking about so many different things that are contributing to this concept <laughs> that is yeah. stretching my brain very far. And I'm curious, how, how, do you, how do you think about this? Is it challenging to you to think about this? Do you enjoy that challenge? Yeah, the whole issue with with this topic is that, I, I mean, my wife has been listening to it now for eight years, and <laughs> and and, I, and, st- and, and you're still, still together. Kind of That's about, great. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you kind of really need to get the big picture of the, of the philosophy. Yeah, and there's so many moving aspects. It goes right down to biology. It goes to perception. It goes to philosophy. But um, so it's kind of like a. It's definitely like I think that everyone can feel it. Like when you give the, the the basketball player example, it just seems like, oh yeah, I've had that experience before in situation X in my field. Electrician, a plumber would feel it, a carpenter would feel it, a car mechanic would feel it. Like at all levels, a bowler would feel it, a football player, like everything. You feel it everywhere. Yeah. And it's just so hard to never mind talking about it. Putting it in words is even harder. It's 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 amazing. 
Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, So like inside of philosophy, like when you found this path and and understanding how you got here, it makes sense. But like the expansive nature of trying to learn about this, understand it, study it is uh, it's a lifetime's worth of work. Yeah. Several lifetimes worth of work. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. So the, it's, it's all, it all goes, I mean, technically it's all in Heidegger and then, uh, since the 1930s and 40s, people have been trying to extract it and, and kind of make sense of it all. Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of he seemed to have it all there on the paper. Uh, it just because the the books are so massive and because there's so many moving parts to the uh, the image that it's hard to get a full picture of it. Hmm. But somehow he wrapped his mind around all of it to a degree where 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 he it made sense to him. It made sense to him, but I don't think it was any more clear than I am now. Yeah, yeah, that's so <laughs> it's, interesting. It's, it's totally- it's, that's the thing. It's like before I start speaking, it's totally clear in my head, and then I start speaking, and it just I feel like, oh, this is not going to be a great podcast. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm feeling the same way. I'm trying. It's really because it's it's also interesting the way that uh, from the limited exposure I've had, and I, and I am challenged by philosophy. Honestly, like it's very 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 difficult to sit down and be like, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to think about this. You know, I'm going to yeah. think hard. I'm going to think about all of the, I'm going to challenge the way that I think that, yeah. that that's tough. But like when you kind of the way that you discuss this, you leave it very open. Like you didn't focus any of the conversation or have yet to focus the conversation. And yeah. I'm like seeking that boundary or like that, yeah. that referential point to be able to grab onto, but it's really it's being comfortable with that floating concept, manipulating and changes like a cloud. It's like trying to <laughs> play with a cloud. Yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. And when I was kind of thinking about it, how am I going to translate this into bonsai? And it, there seems to be so many levels at which it relates to bonsai. Uh, Can you t- instance, tell me? Tell me more of those. I want to. I really like the white pine reference and the chojubai reference. Give me. Give me more. Where are you at? Yeah, I mean that's what really interests me a lot. Is that if I were to, if I were to. If, if I wanted my computer to generate the most ume ume of all umes, what would I have to put into the computer and feed it in terms of rules for it to spit out the most ume ume of all time? And is that even possible? And I, it's probably not possible, but are, are there proportions? Are there uh, percentages of dead wood? Are all these different uh, factors? But see, this is are, what, are they, this is, are this is what I'm trying to understand, time? though. This is what I'm trying to understand when you say that, though, because... There are ume in Japan, and there are ume. I mean, ume, let's just say this: there are uh, maples in Japan. There are maples in Europe. There are maples in the United States. So, from a philosophical perspective, if you isolate Japan and you go to the Kokufu, it feels to me like they've worked it out to that degree, right? Right. But when you start to think about the concept as a whole, like, can you take in, uh, you know, the, the or, or can you develop enough reference points for the most uh, ume ume that, yeah. that you could actually get the most ume right and, yeah. and then it's like well does that become a does that become a world concept does this become like a um like an exposure to natural environment concept and then all of a sudden you start to recognize like each part of the equation completely differentiates by the person who's processing that, who's processing that right, right? yeah and, and, and so are you looking for a homogenous thing that everybody finds about Ume that dictates their execution of well, that? So that's what's, that's what's so interesting is that I'm not sure. Huh. One, of the, one, of the, one of the pieces that really had me thinking about it was the Trident Maple Forest that you had for sale at the, at the sale this week. 
that's a, that's a forest that I've never seen before. It doesn't look like it fits the, the category that I know as, as, as traditional forest. Mm-hmm. And there was something special about it. There was something unique about it. It really stood out. And then is this something where something has been done to this forest where it totally stands out, but is it still, it, I still, I saw it and I knew it was a forest. Mm-hmm. It wasn't not a forest. Mm-hmm. And so is there something about Trident forests that all Trident forests have in common? Yeah. Uh, or are they all just different examples of Trident forests? And so is there a common point? That's what I mean by like, when we talk about the, the ume, ume is the ume, is that is there a, a Tridentiest, <laughs> the most Trident forest of all Trident forests? Is there a common ground? Is there no common ground? Is it just a random arrangement of, of Tridents? Yeah, and it's, it's also, it's interesting to think how, you know, like bonsai started as, um, bonsai started as, as pinging, right? And then you don't, you see penjing and you see bonsai and you recognize that, oh, there's like a lot of similarities here, right? This is both in a tiny shallow container. The, it's both a manipulated form. It kind of looks like a larger tree in miniature, but this one is, is you know, has one aesthetic and this one totally has another. And then, and then you start to kind of like recognize like, oh, okay, that, like I see the, I see the concept. I see the concept, but what makes what makes all of that uh, diversity occur? What makes all of that uniqueness occur? And I, it, that that's like that push that's like that push of stepping outside of the boundaries of the comfort of the potential monotony of it ver- versus like the comfort of sitting in inside of that repetition you know and it's i find i find the mental state of bonsai practice uh to really if you're if you're going to avoid the monotony that you have to try right which is what makes which is what makes some of the magical things that happen uh spontaneously in bonsai creation curious to me because technically if you slip into that state of comfort in doing or like repetitious background uh not muscle memory necessarily but you're you're in it and making decisions you do have to kind of break out of that or at least i personally have to break out of that to make a concentrated big decision where i'm going to deviate from that and that's where I always wonder about like Larry Bird, where he's like, well, the pass happened, right? And I didn't even realize it. And I thought about it afterwards. And I would say, I would say that there, there are definitely moments where it's like, well, well, that tree just kind of happened. And I didn't mean to do that. I was just, it just kind of happened. So it's very confusing to me to try and figure out how this all plays into this occurrence as it relates, at least to me and my experience with bonsai, but also how the concept <laughs> sort of broadly just basically paints the whole, I, re- I it, now that you've said it, I'm going to be doomed. I'm doomed. <laughs> Killed me. What, one question is, is the Larry Bird pass equivalent to your finished tree? Is it equivalent to you, your application of wire, the movement of a branch? At what level are you Larry Birding? I feel, man, I feel, I feel like you're Larry Birding and bonsai. At least this is what makes sense to me. When you put a branch in a place, but you didn't think about it. So it's actually in the movement, like the wiring. Yes, this is like dribbling, but the pass, the pass is something that involves more, (laughs) right? Like you see the defenders, you have peripheral vision and an awareness of thing. And you make a, an action with your body that successfully executes all of that interpretation of information without even thinking about it. That to me is you're looking at the base of the tree, the trunk, the primary structure. You're thinking about 
the images of the tree you've seen in the natural environment or or what you're trying to emulate, like where your objective lies. And and suddenly a branch is in a place and you're like, I put it there and that looks like it fits there. But I didn't right. think about how I, how, you know, the, the shape of that branch, it just sort of happened. Right. I feel like and that's then, the past moment, at least as far as it makes sense to me. Right. And then like the past moment. So you, in people talk about Larry Bird being an expert operating at his best and making the optimal pass for that moment. Mm -hmm. So to, related to bonsai, you'd be placing that branch in the optimal place for that branch where in that moment for you, uh, for that tree, uh, given all the circumstances, when you're placing that branch, that branch is in its optimal position. You find yourself making the optimal decision or the optimal movement, not decision, decision is the wrong word. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and I, uh... I feel that way. I, I rarely, I mean, I watch a lot, of, <laughs> I watch a lot of you and I, I rarely see your decision and be like, I could have done better. That doesn't happen. It's not an experience I have because I see it and that the way you place the branch seems like, Oh, that is the best thing that could have been done with that material. Huh. It often feels that way. Wow. Very least, cool. I appreciate yeah. that. I appreciate <laughs> that very much. I, I, um, bonsai almost has become like a, almost a practice of feelings for me at this point, mm -hmm. you know, and like, I'm really curious to see how it continues to evolve. Like I would love to know how Larry Bird felt playing basketball or how Michael Jordan felt, or like when you see people performing at their highest level and watching Mr. Kimura for me was like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's somebody at the highest level watching LeBron James is, is somebody at the highest level watching, you know, Francis Mallman or some of these chefs on the chef's table is is watching a chef at that. Like anytime you get to see that, people are drawn to that. You know, they're they're really, really drawn to that. I, I uh would love to know what that feels like for each of those individuals, but I know like I also want to know what that feels like when um it, it continues to improve, right? Because that that's an, a never ending process, I I have to assume. Right. Do you think it's a never ending process? Do you think there's a a moment where your your mind doesn't go there anymore, or that doesn't happen for you, or it st starts starts happening less? You stop getting. I think it happens more. I feel I feel like it's happening more. So I I do very little bonsai art. I do mostly propagation, mm -hmm. and I, I find myself. I've been doing it now steady for five years, and it, it, I'm, I'm experiencing it more and more where I can not even realize that I'm planting the shoujo cuttings and I'm planting the shoujo cuttings. Mm -hmm. I can almost do it in my sleep and not bragging here. I'm just saying my brain goes somewhere else yeah. and it enters the state. And, and maybe the best ones happen when I'm, when I'm not paying attention to them at all. Yeah. Or to kind of allow the, allow the soil in my fingers, the way it feels up against the texture, the, the movement, the chopstick in my hand, everything just kind of, you, you, you kind of absorb and you get into a state of flow. Isn't it? I guess. So, so technically if, if, if I'm following you correctly and the way that you're thinking about this is you could also be asking yourself, is there a best the shoujo cutting moment, right? Like, is there a, is there a yes. best shoju by the shoju by of shoju buys? Is there yeah. a best performance of a shoju cutting of performance of all the shoju cuttings? Like, where the yeah. soil was totally. just right and your hand was just yeah. right, and the cut and the scissors and just like this is going to be the 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 ideal repetitious uh, representation. Yeah, I, I mean it, it's out there, right? At least, at least according to Plato, the, mm. the perfect one is out there, and all the ones that we have here in the world are just representations. It's it's conceptual, right? It's not yeah, of it's course, not out there in the heavens. It's it's uh, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Like the, 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 the perfect amalgamation of all things has, has yeah. given you, has given you the ideal. Yeah. The only, the only issue is, uh, not the issue, but I get to cop out because I get to, I get to say, well, there's no real artistry in mind. They're all kind of just the same. But the thing is in the Larry Bird situation, is he, is his pass in that moment for that situation, for, for, for that day, uh, for the, the air pressure in the room, for everything, all things considered, when he makes that pass, is it the Choju bias of Choju bias passes? <laughs> and then can it be the Choju bias, Choju bias, but still be an expression of artistic creation and freedom? Ooh. So when you're placing that branch in the perfect place, can it be perfect for that tree, for that moment, for everything? And how much Ryan Neal is in it? And how much can it be just the way that that tree is in its peak uh, platonic ideal. Wow. 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 It's too, and it, that, <laughs> it's impossible. This is impossible yeah. stuff. This is just like bend yeah. your brain. Yeah. It's, I mean, most of it is just fun to think about. Yeah. And that's why I normally stick to something like a Zelkova room, because when you look at a Zelkova room, I've seen really good ones. I've seen Ebihara's where it's extreme. Yeah. And then there are the Kokufu winning or almost winning Zelkova that are just absolute perfection. Mm -hmm. And, is, is there artistic freedom within the confines so strictly or does it have to be something totally unrecognizable to artistic freedom? And that's where... Well, what do you think about that? Are you, I mean, you're asking a question. I'm curious your thoughts on that. That's... that's yeah. Because this, in, in my mind, this, this is like that boundary of like how far towards Dan Robinson does Bonsai have to go to then be art, right. artistry? Because I would... I'm not the first one to say this. Ted Matson used to say this as one of my mentors, but he'd say, "You want to see a bonsai artist? Look at look at Dan Robinson. Right? Totally. He doesn't give a shit what people thinks. You know, he doesn't care if you like it. He <laughs> he is out there doing something that is completely outside of the most Zelkova of Zelkovas. Uh, totally. You know, with a desire to to represent sort of these landscapes that he's seeing was was pretty interesting. So how far? between the extremes of like the most Zelkova of Zelkova in Japan and Dan Robinson in the United States, you know, how far towards the Zelkova of Zelkovas do you, or can you get before you lose the Dan Robinson of the Dan Robinson, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. You almost need the Dan Robinsons to pull us away from the traditional and help us identify or take a stance somewhere in between where, the the Japanese tradition will will feed into Japanese background and people working in that tradition where people working in North America will have their own version of a North American background. Mm -hmm. But it takes, I guess, so many generations to to build up a, something like a background where we can say this is a uh, an American tree working in an American tradition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's complicated. It is. It is very complicated, and yeah. I think you could also talk about when you start to talk about bonsai or pinging you know, the fascinating thing about it is it's not even just inside of the aesthetic form of the, of the canopy or, you know, this like manipulation of that. You also have element number two, which is the, 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 the vessel in which this living organism has to exist. And the thought process of the ceramic body. And now is there a rectangle of all rectangles? Is there a, you know, reddish hue of all reddish hues to work with a, you know, yeah. bonsai? And it, it starts to become this expansive dissection of, of the whole thing. But then it's even like, I mean, is there a, is there a material of all materials when you start mm -hmm. to talk about the the differentiation? It's it's just so it's so um, 
wild how far it can spider fracture when you start thinking yeah, like this. Totally. What's what's cool is that you get the you get the like the tradition versus the the individual. Mm-hmm. So for for everything in every decision in life, but also in in the artistic creation. So someone, for instance, like Walter Paul, who's almost every tree is very Walter Paulish, or at least it seems that way. Yes. He seems to have identified. So now he can make. Like, like, for instance, Van Gogh's paintings. You can you can look at all of Van Gogh's paintings and point out which one is the Van Goghist. Yes, of course, yeah. And you can do it. So, for instance, any tree that Walter Paul grabs now, hypothetically speaking, of course, he's working within the Walter Paul tradition. That's his background. He's styling the tree. And so, for instance, say we gave him a Zelkova, would he make it? There would be a tension almost between, I mean, not for him, but there'd be a tension almost between the Zelkova, Zelkovaist, of his own tradition versus the other traditions. Um, which one is he choosing? Does he have to choose? I'm not Yo, sure. That, yeah. But like, yeah, well, does he have to choose or, uh, but I think like to your point, there's like some discussion of, is it a choice? Because if Walter, right, yeah. if Walter Paul goes into, goes into deep Walter Paul, right? Like yeah. all of a sudden Walter Paul and flow states just like bow, 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 bow. Right. And you're talking about that. Does the environment change what he does? Now he's created this iconic form. How do you reconcile that? Van Gogh, the, if the environment changed what he does, now he's created this iconic form. Like, is that mean that there's like a period where that mental state does push you into taking new risks? And then there is there a period where that mental state pushes you into a phase of repetition or mm-hmm. sort of mastery of that concept? Right. And is that a yeah. choice? Is that a choice? Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. I think this Damn I'm it. more of it. Yeah. <laughs> Now, now, now! I have no confidence in any decision that I'm trying to make aesthetically in bonsai. I'm now. I'm just going to think about some of you. Like, how did we get here? Yeah, that's the risk. Is that every every decision you can you can say is it? Am I doing this because of the background? Am I doing this because of individual? Mm-hmm. Or is it a combination of the two? Or when I enter a state of flow, what am I doing in that state of flow? Is it truly? Uh, something that's 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 it's a walter polish or is it something that's actually tradition or is it, or is it something in between mm-hmm. yeah there's, yeah when you're making decisions and when you're acting in flow there's a, there's a dance between tradition and individuality yeah and that's where that, that's again where i come back to and the only reason i keep coming <laughs> back to it is like when you see somebody who really does push boundaries it seems like there's a narrative arc to their their interpretation of whatever their medium is or you know, like, and, and and that might not necessarily be true. I don't know what, you know, when you talk about a Van Gogh, or, well, Van Gogh is a poor, um, maybe you talk about a Picasso and like towards yeah. the end of his career, like, was there a lot more sort of consistency in what he was creating at that point in time versus sort of the, the, the startup of that? Like when you think about all the great creations and this flow <laughs> of this mastery and this concept and this filter producing something spectacular, th- the first time that there's really a brilliant piece put together is spontaneous combustion, right? Right. And and then and then uh, and then it happens again, and it's still wild. It happens again, and it's still wild. And it happens again, and it's still wild. And again, and again, and again, and it's not as wild anymore. You know, it's like uh, it it happens so much more. So that's that that boom, that discovery of that new thing is this astronomical and flow state maybe helps you get there, and then and then it levels off again and becomes the way it is. It's like Michael Jordan, by the end of his career, the first 
the first time somebody saw Michael Jordan early in his career is just like he had bad games, he had good games. Those good games were freaking spectacular. By the end of its career, it's like Michael Jordan's gonna have a good game. He's gonna have a good game every game. You know, like a bad game became the anomaly in the beginning. A good game was the anomaly, right? Not 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 entirely for him, but for a lot of people. For bonsai it is. Yeah. For anybody that's gonna be brilliant at bonsai, the first tree's gonna be abysmal. It just is what it is. That's really, that's really challenging. That's really challenging because, because I think there is, I think inside of bonsai as a medium, at least as far as I'm concerned, there is a desire to know that there can be a choice, you know, that you are intentionally making a choice, but also the beauty and benefit of the art form is to slip into that state. Right. That, that, that's the meditative value of it. I mean, that's really where people, people who fall in love with wiring experience that sooner than people that hate wiring i i I firmly believe that (laughs) for sure Uh, because wiring is only magical when you don't have to think about it anymore right and then it becomes the most magical thing ever Mm -hmm. and 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 honestly for me sitting inside of the stress of mr kimura's workshop and being able to produce good work and slip into that state where that level of stress didn't dictate constant conscious thought uh was the only way that demonstrations or being teaching a workshop or having honestly a lot of stimulus a lot of information being taken in not impact the ability to 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 do bonsai that single that singular sort of experience changed changed it for me i don't know that i don't know that i would be able to operate mirai because it has a lot of i would say the same really exciting really positive energy right. around Mirai, which is a little bit different than my experience at Mr. Kimura's, but, <laughs> but just a lot of stimuli, you know, like a lot of constant input that's coming in, trying to, trying to be able to work towards these ideas or concepts, you know, that we're challenging now, um, and having a lot of that. But in our conversation, I almost wonder if that's what's, that's maybe where you start to get here a little bit and being aware of that potentially as a indicator of, leveling off whether whether it's leveling off into the mastery of something or or it's leveling off because you're entering sort of a a period where you're where you're not stepping into the danger zone as much right yes i want to go back we were talking about dan robinson before and 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 identification of of a new tradition or a new background i'm not i haven't been around long enough but people talk and i've heard people talk about how kimura changed bonsai Mm mm-hmm did he is it possible to say that what he did the risks and artistic creations that he took redefined or reoriented the the background for people that he actually if if he did what he had done i don't know somewhere in the states would it would it have created a new tradition and a new background uh and people can identify with it like does everyone right now in in japan identify as post Cameroon? Or, or whatever, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I don't think anybody would admit to that in Japan for sure. <laughs> but I, it seems to me, uh, aren't isn't? Yes, it seems to me that is what happened, and it seems to me that happening is what signifies mastery or or greatness. I guess yeah. to have that kind of an impact to show a to 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 develop the proficiency to be able to explore artistically and push that boundary you know, seems to, seems to me to be tied directly in with what you're talking about when you start to look at the levels of the game to which people engage with 
with this kind of subconscious creativity or mastery. But I definitely think for the Western world, certainly, I don't know if he would have had the same impact doing that in North America at the time. It was definitely a product of the time and of the culture and tradition and uh, all things happening in the world that I think influenced Mr. Kimura. I mean, that guy drove muscle cars and watched Mike Tyson fights, you know, like he, (laughs) he, he had, he wore Italian fashion and, uh, you know, followed a Beatles knockoff band and made his own guitars and like, Guy was oh, into, wow. That guy was into all <laughs> kinds of all kinds of really interesting things that I have to believe contributed to his radical reinterpretation. But then that became, you know, Deadwood as a prominent component. Although not entirely foreign to, to Bonsai in Japan, I think he brought it to a whole new level of significance, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then that appealed, that really exciting aspect of it, I think appealed more to the Western. Whether it's the background, things we relate with or identify, um, or things that excite us or the necessity to be excited. Uh, but but it, it has become, I think, now, which is what's so interesting, because now somebody, if, if Bonsai is to go anywhere else, and maybe it doesn't, maybe this is the shift that takes it away from being called Bonsai, I don't know. That's a whole other conversation, right? right? Um, but maybe it is. Maybe it is. I don't know that you could say... Mr. Kimura, you know, in terms of the boundary of the most Zelkova of most Zelkova versus the most Dan Robinson of most Dan Robinson, where does that gradient exist where you cross over from art into tradition? But I don't, and I don't know how far down that he went, comparatively right. speaking, in terms of where you could go. So if, mm-hmm. if Mr. Kimura took it to here, can you, can you take that farther? I, I, I believe so, but I believe it's very difficult to think that you could outperfect Japanese bonsai. Mm-hmm. You can't Zelkova as Zelkova better than uh, what the the culture of Japanese bonsai has Zelkovaed, unless you were thinking about Zelkova in a different way, right? Right. Um, but you definitely can think about Zelkova in a different way, and I think that's what's happening when you see Australian bonsai, or when you see s- some experimental work. I, Michael Hagedorn not using a pot anymore in my mind is challenging that concept of what makes bonsai bonsai. Totally, yeah. Yeah. And and I think there's an aesthetic and I think there's a practice that challenges. For example, the lab project. You start with the stand. That's challenging bonsai. That's mm-hmm. challenging what makes bonsai bonsai. And all of that seems to play into the gradient to me of Dan Robinson versus, you know, the most perfect Zelkova. And I just want to say I respect Dan Robinson immensely, and I arbitrarily use his name, but I think he is a a maverick to the degree where his push outside of the box was a a bigger push than other people with a pioneering mentality around the art form. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think uh, it's a really strong association to take Dan's creativity and sort of acknowledge that it, it, it was another level of a push. Right. But I wonder what he thinks about when he's working on bonsai. Like that's something that I would that I would be curious about. I would have to believe Dan Robinson doing it as long as he does has done it, or Walter Paul, or anybody else. And this is where I'm saying I'm anticipating getting to that level where I've done bonsai to that degree on my own, mm-hmm. not not under the impression of of you know Mr. Kramer or under sort of the umbrella of his approach, but on my own where I've really you know 
10,000, 20,000 trees that you've put your hands on and, and, and asked all these questions. What does that look yeah. like? You know? Yeah. Yeah. The reason I had asked you that question about Kimura is because uh, Thomas Kuhn had a book published, The Study of Scientific Revolutions. And he talks about paradigm shifts in the history of, uh, of the world. And so he looks at moments where, for instance, um, like Copernicus's discovery or Darwin's discovery mm -hmm. uh, as moments where before that moment, and after that moment, the world was totally different. Oh, wow. And your background and the way you look at the world is completely different. So, for instance, uh, pre-Darwin, we looked at um, the, the progress or the evolution of animals uh, occurring as goal-directed as opposed to natural selection. And then when we figured out natural selection, biology changed, math changed, chemistry, everything changed. The whole world changed. The way we look at people changed. Um, and so someone like Dan Robinson... Or for that, that's the reason why I asked Kimura, is there Kimura, a yeah. pre-Kimura, post-Kimura world? Is someone like Dan Robinson pushing the artistic boundaries enough? Or are there enough people like Dan Robinson happening in, in the, the world to create that kind of a change? Because when Darwin was operating, obviously it wasn't operating in isolation. A whole bunch of people were making similar discoveries at the same time. We just use his name. Uh, okay, he did, he did a lot of the work, but yeah, he became the spokesperson for that change, kind of like Kamara, right? Yeah. I'm sure other people were fiddling or I don't know, I'm speculating here. Doing no, I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, actually, I disagree. Uh, I, it's not even agreement you're asking yeah. that. I, I do think there's a pre Kamara, post Kamara bonsai effect. Yeah. I, I, without, without a doubt, 120%. Yeah, uh, because I think it's a ripple effect that goes beyond him as an individual and also transitions into his students, mm -hmm. you, you know, like like the and that's where when you talk about Darwin is did, did Darwin come back as a single dude and say, you know, this is what happened or do you have other scientists that he was talking about and other people he was right. collaborating with and did that expand his net and his reach and his sort of umbrella i would be curious because the world after darwin you know like mr kimura didn't change math or uh the way we view right. any like it, no. it didn't do yeah. that he changed bonsai though. he changed totally. bonsai though he changed this yeah. very very yeah. small microcosm yeah absolutely yeah. I, just like i think michael jordan changed basketball yeah totally yeah you never after that it was totally different after michael jordan yeah 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 you compare michael people compare michael jordan and lebron it's, just, it's a different game I, I, yeah, I don't think there's much of a comparison. I just, it, when you look at this simple fact, and this is why I think it'll be very difficult for there to be another Kimura, because, yeah. because the amount of change would have to be very, very dramatic mm -hmm. in order to equal. And I think it's like, there is like a, almost a dream effect as somebody gets towards the tail end of their career where people forget how at that moment in time, revolutionary that action was on whatever the surroundings you know, like it's lebron james hasn't revolutionized basketball the way michael jordan did when he came out of north carolina like uh there isn't a, a single person in the world right now who's revolutionizing bonsai the way masahiko kimura did when he started his 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 own facility like that was serious stuff yeah so radical that it's hard to imagine but it did have a ripple effect on what people value aesthetically in bonsai mm -hmm. around the world, hands down. Mm -hmm. So do you think it would take someone making such a drastic change? Sorry to be asking you so many questions. No, please do. you think do. it would take someone making such a drastic change like Kimura to create a North American identity or just enough people doing something marginal, not marginally, but 
significantly different, let's say, to create that, that change where we start looking at bonsai totally differently in North America. I think, I think, you know, a lot of people doing things slightly different over the course of time sort of has this um, high tide raises all ships, but also has more of like a uh, collaborative kind of nuance. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mr. Kimura came on and, and, and really changed the aesthetic. Like he threw something out there that was like, what? Because, because of how, quiet Japanese bonsai was and how traditional and how symmetrical it was and then he's like hey how about I see how far you know I can push this degree of aesthetic I think that had the jolt that has developed asymmetrical bonsai creation now um and yeah thinking about what thinking about what could ever make that happen to have the degree of impact and be comparable, I think it would have to be the brilliance of an individual. I do. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I, I don't know. I think it's too quiet and too um, um, too too quiet of a growth and too long-term of a growth collaboratively to just do a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do feel that. I do feel that. I don't know yeah. what that is, but there is an idea out there. There, 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 are, there are directions Bonsai could go that yeah. would have that kind of a monumental impact, you know, and who knows? I mean, Mr. Kimura obviously wasn't accepted at first, but the brilliance of his work was undeniable. Uh, it, it, was, it was like an aesthetic and everybody's like, I don't know why, but I like that. Like he, <laughs> he figured out the right proportion and, and, and design and all that stuff, you know, like whatever happened with him, he's got it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but there are ideas. I think Bonesai's future is I think Bonesai's future is incredibly bright. And I think there's so much more to be explored. And I I think it's interesting when people try to protect the sort of the um the traditionalness of it because it's born into Bonesai. It's born mm -hmm. into Bonesai like the background is born into your mind, right? Like your foundation. It will always be at least for until there's another revolution and bonsai then becomes sort of a forgotten or a piece, you know, that, that will have to be rediscovered history always being sort of repeating itself kind of a thing. Like it, it will come back again, but, uh, it, but it's, there's a long time and it, and it, I think the traditional aspect of bonsai is pretty much imprinted on all of the next several generations of practitioners as, as, as the initial backbone. Yeah. What do you think? Do you do you do you do you think that that's true? Well, one of the one of the things that uh, that attracts me to bonsai is the the like growth pattern. Like I, I came to bonsai from I was doing Japanese maples as landscape trees before I came to as 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 bonsai. Mm -hmm. And so the thing for the first two years, I essentially just did Japanese maples as bonsai. And I really, really like studying and looking at growth patterns really, really, really closely. So I spent a lot of time at the botanical gardens and looking at other people's trees and studying proportions and things like that. And there seems like there's just physiologically limitations to what we can do with the, the way that the material itself grows, mm -hmm. that the tree itself presents um, certain limitations where I don't, I don't know, what I could do differently, given the the confines of the of the way that the species grows, that that for me is a major limiting factor. So if you're going to get interesting with pots and stands and all these other things, I think it seems like maybe it's, maybe we're, it's all we've got left to to play with. Ooh, I'm not I'm not sure though. I I don't have the experience. It's 
from my limited perspective. Oh, interesting. Well, I, but... I feel limited by by the growth. But like a Japanese maple, I can't make a Japanese maple not look like a Japanese maple. They just what am I going to grow it as a, as a broom? Like a, it just no. They all kind of. <laughs> I no, I think I well. So, are you saying if you take a Japanese maple and you lay it down on its side, it's not gonna it's, that it that it still looks like a Japanese maple? Well, and the, like a raft, you mean? Or or or, yeah. or or just take an extreme bend to its side, and all of a sudden you have an abnormal Japanese maple, right? Yeah, totally. That, yeah, that's, yeah. That's yeah. that risk, right? That's that risk yeah. that you're talking about. I I think um I think I got to a point when I came back from Japan where I was wiring and unwiring trees and thinking about what I was trying to do aesthetically. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? Like I went to Japan and suffered through that to come back and do this. And it wasn't like a disrespectful to the practice or anything. It was just like, man, it's going to take more than this for me to be willing to, because any art form where, where you, where it's worth pursuing, you're, you're going to spend an exorbitant amount of time doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started thinking about that and it seemed to me like what you just said, uh, well, to, to, to what you just said, the only place that is left to push is the aesthetic, is the aesthetic, yeah, right? The boundaries of the so. aesthetic. This, but, but I think this is where, you know, it's one of, one of the interesting things is that how many old growth Japanese maples are there? How, what, what age of Japanese maple are we looking at? What right. uh, environments could, did Japanese maple occupy? Could they have occupied or could they uh, start to occupy in the changing environment that will shift the aesthetic of that species? And I, I think this is where, being in North America, we're very lucky, lucky because you can go see two, three, four, five thousand year old trees. That, the majority of the world doesn't get that. Yeah. And that too has been a consistent discussion for me of, oh, that's how you that's where the exploration is still left that like there's opportunity there there's discovery there there's excitement there there's strategy and concept and and theory and there's a, maybe even a pure sense of the tree ultimately there's a sacrifice of control in that maybe even to the degree where the individual sacrifices the intentional action of choosing a branch to cut off but leaves that to yeah, I've talked about this before, like assigning an action to a, a card that you would pull out of a deck of cards and having the randomness of that card pull dictate the shape of a tree and seeing what happens when that... This is of interest to me. We're, we're actually working yeah. on something like this right now. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, because what happens then? What happens when you think about the way that asymmetry or unique... You, you become the natural element that acts on that Japanese maple to make it not be what you consider a Japanese maple, but the environment acts on trees over the course of time in terms of that representation of age in a way that that tree never intended to grow. It just survived, (laughs) you know? So being, becoming the force of nature, becoming the random occurrence of nature when we're making the intentional decision is always challenged. And that's where it's like, well, what if you do truly create a random act of nature where you're going to be, the snowstorm or the boulder fall or the drought or something and you put, you put that in a deck of in a deck of cards it's interesting like a looney tunes uh the picture in the ant with an anvil to, exactly yeah it's just like what is going to happen even to the degree what happens if you just just 
you know, take a blowtorch and blowtorch a tree and see what survives, you know, I mean, and I'm not suggesting this and I'm not promoting this in any way. I like, I want to be really careful here, but, but there, there are, and I'm not saying this is the next level of bone size. So like, let's be really clear here. I'm just saying there are ways to add in un, un, unplanned, undecided, un, completely random although I guess you would decide to be performing the action, but relatively random acts on material that could completely change the aesthetic outcome and, it may, and maybe even be a little bit more reflective. Right. But I'm not ready. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not, that hasn't, I haven't, I, massa- do it. I haven't massaged <laughs> that to the point where I would ever pursue that. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's so- I think I think the I think the impact of the environment one of the things that spoke to me very much about what you're studying is I believe the impact of the environment has such a massive such a massive uh result in the final outcome of a tree. Mm-hmm. And that really being in Japan and doing bonsai and then being in Europe and doing bonsai and being in North America and doing bonsai I recognize different things. For me it's different. Sensation is mm-hmm. different. Um outcome is different. And and the only change is is sort of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has a massive impact. And and to what degree is is really where where I'm working right now. That's that's where my biggest interest. That's where all my projects kind of, although intertwined with Mariah Live, independently of Mariah Live, I'm working on a lot right now. Um, and that's where my curiosity lies for sure. Yeah, I think the urban environment. Um, I think you could do projects in the urban environment and if they and see the impact of the urban environment on what you chose to create via bonsai and I think it would probably have a really interesting dialogue about how the urban environment impacts people as as, as living organisms mm-hmm. you know because like if you're if you're if you're somewhere at least for me somewhere calm you know I'm not as motivated to create chaos and if you're somewhere where there's chaos, it's very difficult to create calm. Right. And when you think about where there's, if you're somewhere where there is a very limited amount of nature and you're surrounded by this geometric architecture, this, the urban environment, the built environment has to have a significant impact in the same way. It, it, it just has to. Yeah. And I want to know what that looks like and, and, and feels like and, and how, how all of that works. I'm, I'm really curious about that right now. Mm-hmm. but that's because um you know over the i think over the the quarantine being at mirai so much um because i'm here all all day every day all the time um, <laughs> you know it's it's it, it um can homogenize things it can homogenize things <laughs> i find it interesting i find it interesting that you have to continue to challenge yourself yeah i want when, when you were talking about the moods in the city. Uh, I was wondering, do you find certain styles or forms of bonsai inherently chaotic or you say aggressive uh, as opposed to certain others that would be relaxing or calm? Hmm, Something like a Yamadori. Would a Yamadori be be less relaxing than, than, I don't know, uh, something something much more graceful? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I feel like it's all in the way that you it's all in the way that you manage the weight 
uh, in the proportion uh, of the tree and the distribution of the asymmetry as, as far as how I read a tree. This is how it impacts me. Um, and I guess like when you talk about sort of calmness, it, it, really, it really is sort of moving back in, in the realm of very close to symmetrical. Um, and I think inside of symmetry, typically when you have symmetry, you tend to have a larger amount of positive space and a smaller amount of negative space. And so all, all of that starts to formulate um, an aesthetic, right? And when you start to talk about extreme, you have a, a large amount of negative space, a small amount of negative space, and a significant degree of asymmetry. And these, these things for me go hand in hand in singularly describing the aesthetic of age as it's represented through this medium. Um, so then what happens when you go into an urban environment where instead of like extreme or tranquil, you just have no reference to that, but you have the energy of so many people being in a singular environment. Like, what is that? What is that? What does that do? You know, I know what it does on stage in a demonstration. What would it do for a 10 day creation period, just embedded in the middle of an urban environment and just totally eating all of the uh, good and bad, you know, that it gives you and spewing it out as a, you know, a, a tree reflection of that. That's that's fascinating. That is really cool. That's fascinating. Yeah, we tried to do it last year. We tried to do this last year, and it just didn't have the time. And so we started working on fragments of the project this year. It's pretty cool. It's so far so far. It's been really cool. Yeah. I yeah. forgot his name. This is reminding me of um, was the architect you had on, who was discussing doing like an, an acre of bonsai. Oh or, yeah, Brad Clofield. Yeah. 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 Talking with that guy, um, he would be an interesting person to have this conversation with as well because he has such a phenomenal capacity to grasp concept. I feel, as we were talking, I actually thought this, and I was going to ask you this, when you were talking about, listen, a, a chef is going to interpret you know, the environment, the knife becomes something different for him, but through the lens of those elements and food and whatnot. And I started thinking, I wonder if there is an interpreter of all interpreters, you know, like if there is a, a, a broadest, clearest perspective or view of what is happening in this big amalgamation of nature, society, built, natural, all this stuff. And I started thinking, I, I feel like an architect. I feel like an architect from like my experience, an architect gives you that breadth of interpretation because they're having to reconcile so many of these issues that are real time, every day, constant questions and um, clashes of concepts, right? That's a, that was a lot of C's right there. But the, the clashing of concepts of the built environment being sustainable, having a relationship to natural, it's just like this conflict. Yeah. That's what came to mind. I don't know how you feel about that or if you've ever thought about who would be capable of being really able to uh process yeah. all of the, all of those things all the different worlds mm -hmm. yeah for the i mean for the <laughs> i can bring it back to what i know the ancient greeks um it was the gods the pantheon of gods each had their own domains uh, and then zeus was capable of grasping all of the all of the separate domains mm -hmm. including including his own um, interesting in so it's, it comes to it, it goes into the rhetoric of all seeing and, and being up high and it has all, all that go 
goes into it. But you talked about the gentleman um, who kind of created the backbone back in, I think you said, the 30s for sort of for this line of philosophy. Yeah, Heidegger, Martin yeah. Heidegger. Yeah. I mean, th- this is this is somebody that was able to wrap their minds around and at, at least make sense of it enough to be able to write about it to the degree that it is confusing or complex, you know, completely yeah. complexing at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that, I think that's really to have those people that come to those ideas or realizations that actually are able to, I think that's where Mr. Kamara had an impact on Bonesai and where you can cross over to all of the other things that we've kind of talked about is being able to wrap all of that up. And, and, and for whatever reason, again, just going back to the architecture thing, I feel like architecture has taken on such a more significant role. You know, Brad Clopeville, as an architect, when you talk about him, you recognize how much he has to understand to be able to be an architect. And um, a few of his um, colleagues were out this past week and just talking with them about the way they see the land. And the, I was just like, <sighs> kind of kind of blows my mind. But I see the same the same thing in the chef right now and the chef in terms of chef's table. But when you look at some of the chefs, the gentleman in Peru or uh, Lima, Lima, was it Lima? No, in the Andes where he did the each elevation in the climb of the Andes as his, as his meal, that, um, that kind of understanding of the environment and the nature and the ingredients that you can eat, and then the the gastro you know gastrology or gastronomy, whatever they call it, uh, <laughs> and the way that food works and the understanding of the human body and the interpretation. It's just like yes, yes, it's amazing, it's amazing. Yeah, it's the like that full big picture grasp of your domain and world. It makes it so interesting. Incredible, yeah, incredible. I I do feel like bonsai is expanding. I feel like bonsai as an art form is now expanding to be able to expose us to more of the world uh, and, and, and to be a little bit of a bigger picture medium. And this is not, it's not really something that people talk about or refer to with bonsai, but it is the medium that has that kind of power. And I think it's why it creates such a curiosity. If you put a bonsai tree out on the sidewalk in an urban environment, everybody's going to go look at it. There is a draw to bonsai. There's a curiosity. There's a fascination that... Very rarely do you see somebody walk by a bonsai and just be like, eh, that's a rare individual. Yeah. You know, and it, it feels to me like it's, it feels to me like it has some of that magic of, of depth that maybe does make it in, uh, intrinsically capable as a medium of demanding that the people practice it to get to that highest level. Do you have that awareness? And I remember listening to Mr. Kimura speak about a lot of different things that he had a very significant knowledge of. Um, and I always thought that was really cool. And I always wondered, is that a part of being a bonsai professional or is that a part of being Mr. Kimura who changed the game of bonsai in terms of the world's approach? And I don't know. I don't know. But I appreciated that about him. I see that same characteristic in a lot of different individuals that are having that impact. It's fascinating. And I, I love that bonsai can have that kind of depth where you can explore the spider fracture of the art form whatever you choose to do from the horticulture, the botany, the science to the aesthetic and the artistry to the uh, tertiary crafts, to the ethos behind it, to the origins of the aesthetics and the cultural influences to the environmental impact and species nuance and divert. I like it just goes. 
it goes forever. Yeah? It goes, <laughs> and it's um, obviously what makes it a life, a lifestyle is to have that kind of you know like just like philosophy. I would assume is a lifestyle. Yeah, I met with David Easterbrook when when I had decided to come to Nova Scotia, and then afterwards as part of the Benoki training, mm-hmm. to ask him. I, I thought I was going to be here for three or four years. I said I might as well create uh, a Nova Scotia bonsai society or something for the Maritimes. And then hand it off to someone three or four years from now when I come back, just get the ball rolling. I have the enthusiasm and the time to do it. And uh, we started talking and it, it, I was like, whoa, <laughs> there were so many different aspects and the ways of going about it. And it touched so many different people in so many different ways where it seemed like, how am I going to be able to be relatable to all of these people where I, where I don't want, like even now as I, as I have the online store, so many people approach me with from so many different perspectives that it's it's shocking that bonsai can can be really interesting to so many different people yeah. and in so many different ways. Shocking. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. I think this is actually at the I think this is actually at the foreground of the limitation of bonsai. Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, just gaining a knowledge of the art form to this point has meant, hey, we're doing our best. We're doing mm-hmm. our best to just be making our trees in our backyards. But when you recognize the depth of the art form, the depth of the art form and the discovery of each of those components is only limited by accessibility to it being presented in a way where that's a visible component of it. And when you look at how bonsai is distributed, it's kind of a homogenous way that a show has happened in a sort of back room or a hotel lobby over a weekend once a year in a small town or, or, or something like that. It hasn't ever been put out in a way where the plethora of interest and the depth of the art form can be accessed by by the the wide breadth of people who could who could find some sort of identifiable value in it at each of those points right and it's, that's really interesting that'll be a fantastic show yeah yeah and, yeah. and, 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 and it's also like it's also like um, it's also when you think about it do you want bonsai to get to the degree that other things have yeah maybe maybe yeah <laughs> yeah yeah there's a slippery slope i see it that sometimes people they see a nick lens tree and before i know it, they're mounting my the shoujo's on barbies and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it's that's not amazing. how i want people to yeah it's not how i want people treating my trees that's amazing <laughs> that's amazing yeah it's, it's so yeah it, i guess there's a I guess for everything, there must be like this in every hobby where you can, you can, there's a many different people working at many different levels. Yeah. And then some of those levels that seem less important now can be pushed to an extreme and be brought to the level of Nick Lenz, mm-hmm. where it seems like a true artistic statement, even yeah. though at first it might've looked ridiculous, at least the first one he did. Or, yeah. Speaking of Dan Robinson. Yeah. When you yeah. said Nick Lenz, I was like, well that, yeah, that's even farther. Yeah, Nick Lenz yeah. even farther. I I feel like Nick. I feel like Nick Lenz is an unsung hero of, or not un, unsung hero. That might be the wrong use of hero. He is uh, a not recognized enough. Totally. He's not recognized enough for what he did. He was one of the initial and original proponents of native material, mm-hmm. and he was very passionate about it. And he was strong and, and with with uh, what he was able to do with it. It's really impressive. Yeah. I've never met Nick. I love his work. I respect what he's done. I bet he would be a really interesting person to talk to. Um, 
if he was if he was interested in, in talking. Yeah. You know, I think he keeps totally, it pretty yeah. tight pretty tight to the chest, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, when I had mentioned to Pierre Seguin that I was moving to Nova Scotia, he's like, Oh, you need the the Nick Lenz book and <laughs> picked it up, changed everything. I'd look at Nova Scotia differently now. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It changed everything. I was like, Whoa, there are trees here everywhere. Yeah. It's just it's a it's a gold mine of the Amadori. Yeah, because you're on the coast, right? Yeah, it's on the coast. It's all rock. There's just pockets everywhere. It's windy, like you can't imagine constantly. Um, the, the factors are perfect. The, 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 the coastal environment, I've always seen this. You look at pictures of Maine, the coast of Maine, and you've got all, you've got all this uh, you know, eastern white pine along the shore and just all of the wind. It's like, um, it almost reminds me of like the Mugo, like the Krumholtz Mugo fields of the Alps in the, the shore-battered uh, northeastern United States pine stands where it's just these creeping, crawling masses of contorted trees. And, I, and I've always wondered, why is nobody out there? In fact, uh, Malia, Malia was on our podcast from Maine. And I told, I, while she was here, the whole time she was here, I was telling her that, how are you not out there collecting those things? They've got to be amazing. Um, so that's really cool. Are you collecting anything now? I just started looking into it. Uh-huh. And because I'm limited the amount of space, I work out of my house, so I'm kind of limited the amount of space I can use. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so I haven't gone into it yet because it's not something, I'd have to set up a separate greenhouse to overwinter them the first year yeah. and all that stuff. And that's it's maybe in a couple of years from now. Well, you can, you can get out, definitely. you can get out and start feeling the vibe though. Totally. Yeah. Definitely scouting already. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of guys from Montreal that already want to come out and uh, go scouting together. So that's, uh, that's cool. The Montreal community is absolutely amazing. I mean, yeah, it took like one email and then I had like eight guys who were ready to jump on board and get on a carpool and get over here as fast as possible. I, I thought, I thought the Montreal Botanical Gardens collection was just awesome. Just yeah. awesome. And I, I, I love Pierre. I think Pierre is such a great guy. Uh, David Easterbrook, so much respect for him. It's a really solid community of talented totally. individuals. Yeah, Montreal's great. And um, I yeah, that, that's really exciting. That's super exciting to think about tapping into the Northeastern potentials there. Potential yeah. is definitely there. And it's amazing because I went to garden centers and stuff like that just to start feeling it out to see if a Nova Scotia Bond Society was possible. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like every garden center they didn't know them by name, but had so many people who walk in on a regular basis asking for specific species because they're looking to make them into bonsai. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like a daily, daily occurrence for them. It was the guy was like, if you want me to put out a, a paper and make you a list and keep track of who, who comes in looking for bonsai, no problem. He goes, I'll have you a hundred people by the end of the year. I was wow. like, wow, everyone's kind of lone wolfing it here. There seems to be no organization. So I can't wait to find out what the locals have been here for a very long time though. Yeah. I, I'm just working into it. There's always going to be that person too, isn't there? Or people, that group where it's like, oh, wow, you guys are, you guys are doing some stuff here. There's going to be that person that finds, I remember uh, I went to Australia last year or the year before and they had a natives exhibition in Melbourne and uh, there's a gentleman named Quentin in Melbourne that just uh, walking into his backyard, I was like, What? You've been working with Australian natives for like 30 years and you've got just the most impressive specimens of each like Australian native that it seemed like people were just starting to work on. There's going to be that person. That's a Nick Lenz. That's a Dan Robinson. That's a it's fascinating. And what makes that person 
What gives them the ability to do that or take that step so early on without the resources? I think this was David Easterbrook in Montreal. Oh yeah. Totally. What 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 factors form together to to empower them to be because when I started Bonsai, I had a bunch of sticks and pots. Yeah. And and had I not gone to Japan, I I, I mean I figured I learned how to collect trees and stuff, but had I not gone to Japan, the technical aspect of Bonsai would have been impossible. Impossible. Yeah. Yeah. And to see what people have figured out how to do on their own, that's a just a different mentality as well. Totally. I see that. I see that in my students a lot. You see students who, who, like myself, it you know it takes, it takes kind of seeing it, developing a comfort around it, etc. You know, practicing it and really working on your skills. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with learning like that. Like I said, it's like me. But then you have a student who walks in who's never done it, and they're like, look at wire, and they look at the tree, and they look at a few trees in the garden. They're like, yeah, I'll give this a try. And it's just like, wait, how, how? How do you do that? How do you do? You've never even done bonsai before. What, what, what the fuck is that? You know, <laughs> it's amazing when you see that kind of spontaneous, immaculate conception happen. But it's—I'm yeah. sure it happens in everything. To see it happen in For bonsai sure. is spectacular. You know, yeah. it's amazing. My wife has that. Really? Yeah, and she won't share it. I'm jealous with—I'm totally jealous she's, of her. That's awesome. She's the best potter. She's the best potter I know. She won't do bonsai potter. She's got she's got the perfect talent to place branches. She, she's very very visual and she works in a visual field, visual domain. She could. I always tell her I, I'm, I struggle placing branches. If you just it would take you thirty seconds, just make it perfect and walk away. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, just come just just a little bit. Just give me a little bit of advice. <laughs> yeah, totally. I feel like um, I almost feel like that. I feel like that conversation like trickles down into d- different forms of creativity as well. And, and because you, I think you have people that earn their creativity and I think you have people that just inherently are creative. Mm -hmm. Like you have people that become artists and you have people that were born an artist. Yeah, totally. And, and both of them, honestly, at the end of the day, have their own merit that the other cannot accomplish or achieve that is equally as valuable, beautiful, inspiring, intelligent, you know, organic, all of those things. Uh, But there is a, there is a tangible difference between the creative product of somebody born a creative and somebody who has worked to be a creative. Yeah. Yeah. It always, it'll always show. It, 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 that's a weird yeah. thing to me. That's a weird yeah. thing that you can visually connect that, that it's, and that's, what's been so interesting. I think with all of the ways that, you know, Mariah live and the video production and stuff at, at Mariah and, and the way that the garden has interacted with a lot of different projects to, to get to experience a lot of different creative communities I had no exposure to prior has really pointed out, oh, there's levels to the game of creativity as well. Holy yeah. smokes. There's, there are inherent, what is that? What is that? Is that something that is influenced by the environment in the same way that inactivity, would you say somebody that's more creative inherently goes to that space easier? I have no idea. This seems like the uh, the baseline, right? Is something that you can, like the the normative baseline, is something you can react against or away from. And it seems like that always needs to be, for me, anyways, a conscious decision. And then once it becomes your style, it becomes your style, and you can be at a flow in that stance away from the homeostatic baseline. I don't know. 
So when you talk about inactivism, do, do you believe that you have to move out of flow state to make, uh, to make a choice to, to, to step outside of yourself? Do you have to make that choice to step outside of yourself or, or do you see that flow state as the moment where that's going to occur? So all of the examples that I've studied are always prime examples where it's someone acting at their best but they're doing it to such a great degree that nobody else would have done it that way. So for instance, one good example is uh, in, in book 10 of the Iliad, uh, there's a hero Diomedes. And so Diomedes gets into a situation where it seems impossible. Uh, there are 10 guys or whatever, a lot of guys attacking him and he needs to fight his way out of it or he can run. And in that situation, the, the normative uh, reaction, while people would have been felt, say given in, in that situation, in that environment, they would have been drawn to run away. And he, uh, it says, is, doesn't make the decision to fight against all these people. He feels drawn to fight them. So whereas everyone is drawn to, in the state of flow, disappears, he stays and fights. Mm. So his, his, his reaction actually is completely the opposite of what the, what the norm is for everyone else. But it remains normative in terms of his individual version of normative reality. Hmm. Interesting. So he stays there, he fights everyone and does an amazing job at it. Um, and that he des he's described as in being in being in that state as close as one can get to the gods. And for the Greeks, the gods are at least in in my reading of it the normative basis. Yeah. So yeah, so someone like so someone who's doing something totally different can be doing it in a state of flow. Uh, but because for so long they've they've trained themselves, so their background, their individual version of the cultural background uh, is already. A stance away from homeostatic in that respect for that particular niche for that particular thing there so just just the in just the influence up to that point of culture has already differentiated them yeah because of prolificness exactly yeah the yeah you had to talk about the prolificness with uh with keegan yeah i in that podcast, yeah where you guys were saying that a certain number of hours the yeah and is it and i don't think it's the 10 i think i, I don't think it's the what ten thousand hours I, I that has nothing to do with it and that's why i'm saying when i'm 50 or 60 or 70 i want i want i'm so curious to know then yeah i think in uh, yeah man that really that that and that and that's really where it becomes a brain bender too because you've as we were talking earlier, you do see sort of a narrative arc of of people's creativity, which is why I asked you if you thought that there would be a point where people would enter a flow state less and less to perform at that higher level. Once you've accumulated so much time and 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 you have sort of reached that higher and higher level, do do you get to a point where it it doesn't in fact, you know, more and more and more doesn't in fact give you better and better and better and i and i think there is there's a there's a creative candle just like there's a an existence candle right like it, your, your yeah. wax is going to burn out at some point <laughs> and, and 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 when do you hit that and how do people maximize their creative lifespan and longevity and how do you determine on the spectrum where they're at based on what they're producing because this becomes I think for bonsai, a really grand discussion of is the brilliant, brash, young, energetic creation of Kimura more or less brilliant than the totally mature, worked out 
twilight of his career creation that's taking all of the information over the course of his career and applying it to that decision. Mm-hmm. That that is a curiosity to me. That is a big curiosity to me in 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 this whole discussion. In this whole discussion because in activism where you're compelled to make that decision over time with accumulation naturally shifts. Right. Yeah, the other factor is also as you're performing at your best, let's say for X number of years, if other people, if you've changed the world, like like Kimura did, let's say the bonsai world, then other people start operating at that level and you're no longer at a higher plane. Exactly, yeah. You're at the level that everyone else, you brought everyone else to. Yeah. So you, you sure you still get the credit for it, but the work that you're producing is kind of on par with the work, well, not on par, but is much closer. Everyone else is much closer to you. Yep. This is standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Like this is this yeah. is this is that uh, that sort of forgetfulness we have of that impact at that time and in context that, mm-hmm. that we talked about with Jordan LeBron. Yeah, it, it all it all becomes such a murky amalgamation of ideas. But I I feel like it's important to think about. Like I really appreciated that you reached out, and I think it's important to think about if um if there is the notion of trying to take or explore bonsai further you know like i think it's a different motivation and mentality um when you are following the model that has been set i i, I really do and it's and it's a, and it's a comfortable and there's a a discipline in the daily dedication and practice to the pursuit of perfection of an established model and and there's all kinds of wonderful benefits that come from that and and then there is that brilliance that arises with that daily dedication with the right individual and that right sort of level of creativity that boom then breaks the mold and then there's all factors combined that reset the entire notion right Uh, and uh the other question i would ask inside of that is whether one individual could bypass all natural talent through effort to achieve the same things and this goes back to the 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 built creative or the the person who made them creative versus the person that was born a creative. I tried. It can't be done. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm naturally zero artistic talent, which is why, which is why I'm so inclined. I'm not why, but I really enjoy propagation Mm -hmm. and I really, really enjoy the very, very, very technical, like the Ebihara maple stuff. Yeah. It's totally my jam. But if you asked me to style a tree, if you gave me the best tree and helped me and told me to move a few branches and make it look better, I wouldn't be able to do it. I wouldn't know where to begin. Mm-hmm. I tried, thought about it a lot. I will enjoy thinking about it, <laughs> but doing it, just can't do it. Yeah. See, I think you can learn. I think you can learn that. I think you can really learn oh, that. Yes. You know, that, that's what makes bonsai so accessible and so beautiful too. I remember, yeah. I remember talking with Arushabata, uh, who was my senpai when I first started, and he was telling me he thought because in Japan, in the creation of bonsai, they call it, you know how 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 talented are you are your sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, that person has good sense, right? A good, a good sense of the art form, a good sense of beauty, whatever, all of the connotation that that sense could mean. And, cool. and I remembered thinking about sense as, are you born with sense or do you just inherently 
um, or do you accumulate sense? And talking with each of Mr. Kimura's apprentices was very interesting because you could also say inside of sense, there's several different types of sense. And so then all of a sudden you have an Abihara, which is like a mad scientist intelligence, or you have a, a Shinji Suzuki, which I think is a really, you know, much, much more sort of uh, soft, beautiful, understated. And then you have a Kimura, which is this big, bold, uh, yeah. a, a, abrupt, aggressive kind of sense. And Arushabhata-san said, you know, I don't really worry about all that. I, I, I think it's kind of like a like a, a file cabinet in your head. Look at a lot of pictures, put them where they need to go, and when you, <laughs> when you got to reference something, pull it out. And I just thought, well, that's a beautiful way to bypass all of the nonsense of wondering about it. Uh, but I, I, I feel like that's a trained creative, you know? Like, I feel like there's the intelligent, creative... Um, Build, builds that data bank. Yeah. Builds that data One bank. One thing, interesting thing about it is, is whether artistry and bonsai is strictly the final product of visual aesthetics or whether you can find it in other things. Mm -hmm. For instance, like mossing the pot. Okay, sure. Yeah, that's, that's the obvious one. But what about sifting? Does someone sift beautifully? Does someone wire beautifully? Um, the application of the wire, the movement, the way they move their shoulder when they wire is exactly. their artistry. It's like a ballet as opposed to a fine art, a visual art. I mean, like painting. Don't you want it to be? I want it to be because I'd like to be able to say that propagation is an art. <laughs> I, 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 well, and, but I almost think it's like in the, yeah. pro propagation may not be an art, but the way in which a person who pursues it to that degree, it becomes an art, right? Yeah. That, and I, I think... I, I would like to think, and I've thought about, I'm really fascinated at what you're talking about because you're talking about a lot of um, concepts that just through the, the, the blatant um, obsessive practice of bonsai has, has to inherently strike people like, a, you know, like an anvil. But is, is there a beautiful action in every single thing you can do in bonsai? And I, I believe that there is. I do. Yeah. I believe there's a beautiful product. I believe there's a beautiful performative art to it. I believe there's a beautiful, um, um, you know, aesthetic. I believe there's a beautiful technique. And when you start to think about that, you could look at the creativity of bonsai. Like, think about this. Everybody thinks about styling the crown of a bonsai. But what if you used a transparent pot and you styled the root system of a bonsai and that was actually your creativity? You know, that was, that was actually the, the, and I've thought about this a lot in terms of like the 3d printing and how you could use 3d printing as a scaffolding to utilize the root system of a bonsai, make the crown completely, completely unimpressive and make the root system the most radical thing you've ever seen. It's the best idea I've ever heard. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of been done though, right? Like Neogari, you know, the exposed root yeah. style. Like everybody's yeah. buying them for the roots. So like it's kind of been done, but nobody can actually deny the crown. Like they can't leave it alone. But yeah. what if you just saw something so incredibly radical in the roots? You're like, I couldn't give a shit what that crown looks like. I think that's going to be fascinating, right? I think the, uh, I have like, I keep photographs of all my trees mm -hmm. and the ones that I photograph the most are the ones that I screw to the boards and arrange the roots perfectly to get that Abihara base. Yeah. And I obsessively take photos about them because I'm meticulous. I'm like the Sergio Kwan level meticulousness, like they're just perfect. Yeah. And they're all like, oh, I'm so proud of that, but the tree looks like garbage up above. And a clear pot would be perfect to expose my work. <laughs> I think, I, I think it's, I think it's and an some interesting, kind of a perfect yeah. it's an interesting proposition. <laughs> 
It is. Randy, like that. Randy Knight's field grown material was the ma- he was the master of the base. He had the base down. <laughs> Up above the base, you never knew what was going to happen. A lot of it was good. It was pretty wild uh, material, but the base was always his focus. But you could also even think about right now, soil science is the next threshold of bonsai, or at least I think it's a threshold where we recognize there's a lot of undiscovered information. And you could think about, is there an artistic way to approach the soil science? I, I, I believe there is. I believe there is. And I think like, learning more about the cultivation of food, you recognize people talk about heirloom possessions and heirloom creations, but um, thinking about heirloom soils, thinking about soils that have been created over generations, much like a bonsai tree that are fertile and that cultivate healthy food with the most flavorful, beautiful taste that you can't duplicate and nobody else could recreate in any sort of even you know, like decade-long fashion, I, I I became inspired by that and am challenging myself to create an heirloom soil in my garden that I can pass on to my son, even if he leaves <laughs> this place, yeah. to take the soil with him because I think yeah. that is freaking fascinating. That an heirloom soil and that that's almost yeah. like an artistic way of handling. And when you think about it generationally, this is what fed. North America in the very beginning was the 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 mastery uh, uh, of the soil system and heirloom soils. It's it's really really uh, when you think about bonsai, so many unexplored things that you could do to such a high level that would change the art form entirely. Maybe maybe to the power that Mr. Kimura had an impact. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe not. I yeah. wonder what the results with something like that would be. Would you just get a healthier plant or do you think it could change something more radically than that? I think it's more radical than that. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I do. I think, and this comes back to finding a substitute for Akadama. You know, like the, the idea, I know, or at least I think I feel pretty confident that you're not going to find another particle that's going to behave the same. And when people think, well, let's find a substitute for Akadama. We have to find something that behaves the same. That's too narrow of a way of uh, conceptualizing the soil system of a bonsai. And that's, uh, I don't know if you listened to, um, I don't know if you listened to the um, Gareth Barber podcast where we talked about aqua, aquaculture a few <laughs> yeah. weeks ago. Okay. So, so you know, water quality is getting worse and availability of water is getting worse. And, um, and that's uh, something that they have to deal with. And now manipulation of the microbial activity in water is 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 a solution. This is this is beautiful. This is amazing. <laughs> and um, you know he's talking about worm castings and worm castings having the capacity to ramify a root system in the same way Akadama does. And now the substitute for Akadama, if if his actually worked, and I don't know what that equates <laughs> to in the canopy, and that would take a lot of work to figure out. But that's a really interesting substitute, quote unquote, substitute for Akadama. In, yeah, in, in a way, in an indirect way, but is there even a greater substitute for Akadama? Could you mm-hmm. think about it even in a completely different way altogether once again? And I mean, that's when you could start to get into potentially species that have never been used as bonsai, using them or treating them in a bonsai fashion. Mm-hmm. Succulents are a wonderful, like new f- frontier. These are these yeah. are these are crazy opportunities and <laughs> succulents. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things happening in Montreal for a substrate. There seems to be like three or four different types of things happening mm-hmm. where people are using four different types of variations and uh they've been because it's Montreal been tested now for like 30 years. Yep. Or at least, Sh- at least Shabuzai, right? 
Yeah, the Shabbosai that the, 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 the Montreal club promotes. And that works miracles for people who are doing it. They absolutely love it. And it's absolutely amazing. And then uh, my teacher, Eve, uses uh, cocoa fibers, gravel, uh, and perlite, mm-hmm. which is offensive to a lot of people. Uh, but it works amazing. His trees are all perfect. He's got the most beautiful bases. It's really unquestioned. Yeah. And he's been using it now since like 87 or something like that, he said. So that's crazy. It's, yeah. It's like <laughs> at, at some point, I'm like, oh, do I really need to? Does it need to get more complex or can it just be so simple that it's impossible? Like what I like about Eve's mix is it's impossible for me to overwater. Mm-hmm. I can just, I can leave the hose on all day, can overwater. And I love that. Yeah, because it's basically a hydroponic mix. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. That's got to take a yeah. lot of water to keep those trees hydrated though, yeah? Yeah, well, it's Montreal and Halifax are not the, uh, I, I've never had to water more than twice a day yeah. at the peak of summer. Yeah, yeah interesting. So then, you have ultimately a spider every concept spider fractures into a much greater conversation but then you start to talk about soil and the complexity of the soil being equivalent to the needs of the environment and then the needs of the environment you know sort of can soil overcome the the deficiencies in a species in that environment the only reason plants grow where they grow in the natural environment is because they can outcompete other species in that in that environment and that singularly dictates that. But if if you give the tree all of the benefits of the resources that it needs or put it into its own vessel so it's not competing, all of a sudden you're able to accommodate a tree in a much different way, right? And that, that comes down to soil. I think this is where if you want to talk about an equivalent revolution to Mr. Kimura's uh, aesthetics and technique, you would talk about the introduction of the Boone Mix in North America. Oh, yeah to and i understand what you you what you're working with in in canada and shabuzai and sort of all the limitations as far as the united states and bone time the united states akadama pumice lava was like holy cow we can keep these things alive and actually thriving and healthy for the first time in our lives and and, and that's that, that that's like inaccurate to a degree because obviously there are historic trees from the original bonsai practitioners in north america but there aren't many of them you know, yeah. and I think there's there's probably more healthy trees now. That so, that soil had a major impact. That and that that actually got me thinking about soil. When we did a little um, exhibition or collaboration with um, Aesop. Aesop is a brand out of Australia, but we did a collaboration at their shop in Portland and used um, the textures of the soil as one of the big like grounding elements to the exhibition. So the soil actually became quite quite beautiful in their space as like a a valuable component, and that that really started me thinking like wow. And and one of the other things that I th- I thought was interesting about that project is um their their creative director that she's like bring in as much copper wire as you can, and I'm thinking like well spooled copper wire is pretty expensive. I I I don't know how. So I brought in all of the cut up copper wire from unwiring trees. And that became a major element in that exhibition as well is that it, oh, wow. it, and finding beauty and there's like a story to the used nature of it and the purpose that yeah. it served and uh, the contortion that it has and the hand that, you know, added that bend. It just like this really big dialogue around freaking copper wire scraps. That, <laughs> that, and, and so you start to understand it's like, wow, if every gesture is performed artistically, almost everything can be that statement 
propagation included. That was such a long way to get there. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's cool. I love it. I love it. I love bonsai. I love bonsai more now than I ever have. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that having spent so much time in Japan, you have to constantly, or not constantly, but consciously struggle? Like if you go enter a state of flow, will you have to, can you accidentally style a camaraderie and you're like, oh shit, I didn't want it to look like a camaraderie? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. more, more, I would say more in the beginning. I had to really, I had to really work hard. 2012 was like a really crux year for me because I drove across North America and I saw the national show in Rochester, New York, and I heard the uh, Yasuo Mitsuya's critique of a flat top bald cypress piece, yes. and you know, just like that combination of events. Um, I had been in Japan earlier in the year and helped with the kokufu and stuff and i was like if i'm gonna do this i've i've actually got to try like this isn't just this isn't just gonna uh manifest itself in a natural shift maybe over 30 or 40 years but i wasn't happy with what i was doing um being in the united states trying to do japanese bonsai on native north american trees because it didn't give me the same result the culture wasn't there the species were different like the, the trees behavior was um you know needed different considerations and it's like well the aesthetic has to follow the function of the tree and and, and follow suit you know and so that became I, I think that became the moment and it was an effort um but even now if i'm overworked if i'm really having to hustle I can I can definitely sink back into automated bonsai mode, and I don't think about I don't have to think about anything. I don't I, I can literally just shut the brain off and go, and it'll be a it'll be a very yeah it'll be a very formal looking tree. Oh, cool! Yeah, it's interesting. But I like I really um, the approach at Mirai takes a lot more time. Okay, it takes more time to do what we're doing right now because I'm retraining. Much like I'm, sh I'm sure Walter Paul in his transition, it took time to try and do that, or Dan Robinson, it took time to try and see that aesthetic or explore, or understand that. It's taking time right now, um, but that's okay. I, I, I enjoy that. I really enjoy that actually because it's because I'm not tuning out. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I guess that's the. There's also the tuning out versus flow. Mm -hmm. I guess, and they're almost this. A similar experience almost right it, it seems to me yeah it yeah. seems to me that they go hand in hand yeah but maybe tuning out versus flow are the differences of where you're saying when you're defining inactivism you're defining that moment where you achieve something more brilliant because of the consistent state that you've practiced that yes yeah. um you know yeah subconscious awareness in yeah. but when you talk about tuning out you know like tuning out makes it sound like it's an effort i don't i don't know that anybody can sit down and be like i'm gonna tune everything out the act of bonsai allows you to tune it out maybe tuning out is the is the massaging part of it maybe tuning out is the architectural practice to master the art deco style and maybe flow state actually is more specifically that elevated position from all of that tuning out that allows you to break new, new barriers. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. All of all very interesting conversations though, to think about yeah. and probably conversations that I don't think anybody's ever had.
Yeah. The, the place where I've had it the most and the, my whole thesis was, was working towards this was the, the Homeric poems are, are absolutely massive and they would take an extraordinary long time to recite. So they were recited normally. It's like they were recited orally uh, in public before an audience, usually on stage uh, or at a banquet, something like that. Mm. And they were, they were performed. And every time that they were performed, like any story, the poets themselves would make subtle changes to the versions of, of, their, of their story. Uh, but the poems were presumably so long and uh, there were like memory cues within the, within the songs. At least it seems that it looks like that now. Um, so while they were performing, they could, in a sense, enter a state of flow where their, their bodies and brains and minds were producing the song without them having to actually think what's the next word, what's the next word, what's the next word. It just kind of flows from you. I'm guessing this is probably the experience for a lot of singers. But because of the poem itself by nature is one that changed so drastically, or not so drastically, but considerably each time they pursued that, that ideal. That was like a, the, the, the perfect song, the most beautiful song, or they can add their own twists and flares to, to the performance while being in that state of flow. So that's where I, I looked at it, at, it, at it the most, where we have three or four versions of, of the same kind of poem or multiple versions of different sections of the poem. Um, and then what makes them the best kind of poem and, and, and would memory, uh, are there more memory cues in the poem? Are there less? Did this guy take more artistic freedom? Did he take less freedom? That, that kind of thing. Interesting. Interesting. <sighs> Man, I feel like we could talk about, we've been doing this for over two hours now. Oh, no. Yeah. And, and which I'm, I am more than happy to have done. And, and honestly, like, I feel really bad because I think it took me uh, quite a bit of time to even uh, remotely kind of piece together kind of the nuances of it. I feel like uh, I feel un kind of idiotic about how I sort of stumbled through trying to understand what it was we were actually talking about. Well, I, I came into it slightly uh, trying to figure out myself how I was going to uh, match it up to bonsai. So, so I had my brain in bonsai and I was trying to explain the basics and uh, yeah. 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 It was, I think we got, I think we got here. I think we've understood the puzzles. I, I think, I think definitely <laughs> that you've posed a lot of really interesting thoughts. Um, and, and I've just been trying, I've been trying to keep up a little bit and, and also it's stimulated a lot of thoughts and, and sort of things that, that, that have kind of rang true over the course of the conversation. I would love to, I would love to continue this. I want to, I want to sit with some of this and, and, and see if I can make a little bit more sense of it before we talk again. But, um, but I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you reaching out. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's, uh, great to speak to you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Derek. Um, well, let's be in touch. Let's do this again. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, for, I'm gonna start thinking about it a lot, and and uh, I'll talk to about my. <laughs> I have my my best speaking buddy, my wife, and uh, she'll help she'll help me uh, formulate and, and and match it up to bonsai. Nice, nice. I like it. I like it. You got some time cool. in Halifax too, so so you'll have some time to marinate on it. Yeah, it rains most days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, um, congratulations again on the Benoki Scholarship. That's freaking awesome. Oh, thank you so much. And, yeah, it's a uh, game changer for me. Yeah, yeah, and good luck with everything you're doing, but let's stay in touch, Derek, and I appreciate it, man. Cool, thanks so much. Thanks, uh, thanks, thanks okay. for having me. Yeah, you bet. See Have ya. a good night. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye.